brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. All right, here we go. Episode 28 of the Former Action Guys podcast. Uh, this week I have my friend Chris Walker on the show. In addition to being an artillery officer and a JTAC, he's a working actor with appearances in Punisher, uh, The Blacklist, and most recently Ray Donovan. We discuss his two deployments that he went on with 1-7, uh, one Mew, and then one time on their uh, 2012 deployment to Singin. Uh, we also talk about when him and I worked together at First Anglico. Um, we picked up another five-star review this week on Apple Podcasts, so shout out to Bon9188. He said, uh, Semper, and he said, loving the podcast, keep it up, 210, Victor26, Bravo Fist. So, hey, man, thanks for uh, thanks for shooting in the review, uh, 210, that's where I was at, you know, it was my uh, first artillery unit, so uh, I remember Old End Street, good times over there. Anyway, uh, make sure to get your review in. We're going to read it on the next episode or send in any comments you have to formeractionguyspodcast at gmail.com. That's formeractionguyspodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you haven't already, smash that subscribe button and, uh, and make sure to share the show with your friends. I appreciate the continued support, everyone. Um, you know, it's, it's been a great. Um, and then finally, make sure to check out my website, jkramergraphics.com and my Instagram page, jkramergraphics. All right. All right. Um... Thanks, everyone, that sent in uh, the questions to Instagram. Also, um, I put that up on my stories, so we got through some of those. Uh, Chris answered some along the way without us even having to ask, and then some we answered there at the end. So thanks again for that, and yeah, all right. Let's enjoy the show, everybody. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. All right. So, hey, uh, today on the show, or today I have Chris Walker on the show. Uh, him and I worked together at First Anglico, but, you know, he's an artillery officer, uh, you did a couple, you did more than one deployment to Afghanistan, right? Or was it just the one? Uh, no, it was just the one. And then I did a, a couple Mews and, uh, you know, the one we were on. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah. So let's start from the beginning though. Um, what, what made you decide to get in the Marine Corps or join the Marine Corps? Um, 
Well, my my family, we we had a lot of people in the army. Uh, my grandfather was in World War II, uh, and he was a sergeant. Uh, the story goes that he was with the OSS, but I don't know how truthful it is because I know a few CIA officers, and we looked it up, and he doesn't show up. So what I think he did is he, he was a state trooper in Michigan, and he infiltrated Nazi groups in America. So um, he he had a pretty great story about like being in an elevator with a bunch of Nazi sympathizers in the forties and, uh, having to like sit there and like in a very black area of Detroit, uh, start just railing against black people, uh, to get in with these, uh, Nazis and like, so he doesn't get like knifed in this elevator. Um, yeah. and then, uh, my, my uncle, his son, uh, was in the, uh, Mac V SOG in, Vietnam, so he was uh, he was a sniper. He's got all kinds of crazy stories about killing NBA officers, uh, and then uh, yeah, so we have we have a lot of military tradition in the family, but uh, no Marines. And then uh, when nine eleven happened, uh, I joined us. I tried to join as soon as I turned seventeen, uh, but my parents wouldn't sign the waiver, uh, and I actually tried to go to the army because Band of Brothers had just come out. And, you know, I was like, <laughs> Dude, oh, I want to go be airborne. That had to have been like a, an amazing recruiting tool for the army. Uh, yeah, because the the first episode came out a month before nine eleven, so everybody oh. was already into it, and then it then it went on for that, and it was just like it was huge. So uh, my parents wouldn't sign the waiver, and then I uh, had the marine recruiter from at high school in my high school. He came over to the house, and I was like, I want to join the marines, and I was like asking for a dollar, getting turned down, and asking for fifty grand instead. My parents were like, Fuck no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So then I just I, I went to college, kind of forgot about it for about two years, and then um, I ran into my buddy uh, who is an 0811 uh, in Fallujah, uh, who did provisional infantry stuff, and uh, we got to talking, and then I ended up going to a talk at school, uh, and it was Nate Fick, and he was just he was on his book signing tour for mm. One Bullet Away. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah, so I went and I talked to him, and uh, you know he was like, I got the first taste of Marine attitude in that, and like. I was like, hey, I think I'm going to join. And he goes, yeah, well, we'll see if you make it. And it was that kind of very Marine thing where it was like, it was the first time in my life people were like, well, I'm sure you'll do great. It was like, yeah, we'll fucking prove, prove us wrong kind of thing. You know, yeah. like you have to earn your, your keep here every day, which is, which I've always liked about the Marine Corps. Uh, that's, so I didn't know, I didn't realize you had that lineage. I, I didn't, that's pretty wild. Yeah. And, I mean, my grandfather, my other grandfather was in uh, the Navy in World War II. I've got, I've got like a, some great photos that he took from the bridge of his ship, uh, off. They, they were, he was there during D day, uh, with like the landing forces just oh. running around, hmm. uh, like a small cutter, uh, in like the escort fleet. And then they, they gave that cutter to the Russians under the Lend Lease Act. So that he's got this great photo that I have hanging in the, the, uh, living room. Now they took off the coast of, uh, uh, Alaska, uh, sailing that up there to give it to the Russians mm-hmm. um, in the later part of the war. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, d- decent, decent lineage in, in terms of that. Uh, I think it's, I think it's easier for guys like I'm the same way. My my dad was in the army. My my one grandfather was in the army, and the other one was in the air force. And then I have like an uncle that was in the navy and stuff. And uh, like my dad was in the Gulf War. I remember him deploying when I was a kid. And, you know, I have a picture of him. I actually have a picture sitting over there that's him getting an award. And it looks like it's nighttime, but it's just so black because of the uh, oil fires from the Gulf War. But as a kid, you know, I didn't watch, like, westerns and shit like that. As a kid, I was watching war movies. And me and my brother were playing war. You know, we had dad's old camis we'd be running around in and shit like that. 
So it was like, same thing. I, I thought I was going to join the army. You know, I, I remember Band of Brothers, but also I was like super pumped when like Saving Private Ryan came out. Um, oh yeah, I went and saw it like three times. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, this is going to be great. They kept showing like the replays of it on AMC, but and I grew up watching all the classic war movies. You know, my dad, we watched all the classic war movies. My mom's side, we're watching like Sound of Music and shit like that. But <laughs> but um, so I think it was kind of a natural fit. So I can understand why you kind of you know lean towards. Yeah, I was that kid who never stopped playing GI Joe. You know, just yeah. like in high school, I started playing paintball, which you know sounds really lame. Once you're in the military, it's like <laughs> if, when, when people tell you they play airsoft or paintball, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. I've never done uh, airsoft, but, but paintball is pretty fun. Yeah, paintball is pretty fun as long as you're not taking it too seriously. Like it can be really fun. But um, when people start acting like they know how to fight because they play paintball, I'm like, yeah, okay. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, I actually had a guy on a on a movie set tell me that one time. He was like, we were doing some stunt stuff, and he was just like, oh, no, it's okay. I, I play airsoft. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Like, it's basically the same thing. So yeah, he was basically he's like, I'm tip of the spear, blah 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 blah, and I was like, yeah, okay, whatever, shut up. Yeah. So when did you end up going to uh, OCS? What year was it? Uh, it was 07, uh, and I did PLC. So I, I was uh, I did the 10 weeks. Um, you want to explain and, what the PL, uh, PLC is? Yeah, so the platoon leaders, leaders course, course is, uh, is different than the uh, officer career course, OCC. So uh, OC, one is you go between your junior and your senior year, uh, and then you're, they put you in to, to Deers as like an E5 just to, to pay you while you're there. Um, and then you go back to school in your IRR, uh, in individual ready reserve, uh, until you graduate. And then when you graduate college, the next day your OSO will come down and, and commission you and pin you on as a second lieutenant. Uh, for OCC, those guys, they go after their senior year. So they've already graduated. So as soon as they're done with OCS, they go to the Marine Corps Museum and they, and they get commissioned right there. Hmm. So I still had to go back, uh, and do a year of college, which was very funny because like... I was not like, I'm a completely different human being than I was before I joined. You know, I was like, I was in choir in high school. Mm-hmm. Like I, oh, really? I knew I wanted to do, oh yeah. I didn't play any sports. I was, you know, I was kind of a big, kind of a big wuss and uh, very afraid of like a lot of things and like a picky eater and, you know, just like a, you know, just kind of a, a wimpy kid. And then uh, I didn't, I didn't run a mile until I decided I wanted to join the Marine Corps. And then, you know, the, the year leading up, luckily I had a friend who was a, a personal trainer uh and he got me in shape and uh so by the time i got to ocs i was uh you know i could i got i was scoring like a 285 on my pft um uh, but yeah I, I was i was like a total wuss and I, I went back for my senior year of college and it was like a completely different game you know i was just, I, college seemed completely uh, it wasn't scary anymore. Like the the consequences of it seemed so less after having dealt with you know the drill instructors and uh, having had all the, the the shock and awe of you know essentially boot camp at OCS. You know, you know the no, the no stalls on the toilets and all that, all that kind of stuff. You know? Yeah, like I, I used to be like a like nervous in the bathroom, and then I like went back from my senior year, and I would like be like shitting in the library and laughing as loud as I could to try to make everybody else uncomfortable. <laughs> like, like, you definitely get used to no personal, you know, yeah. privacy in boot camp. That's that's a hundred percent true. Yeah. So I went and I did that. I went back. Uh, I, I then I commissioned on the deck of the USS Yorktown uh, in Charleston. Uh, you know that museum they have there, uh, and a buddy of mine 
the, the one I talked to from high school, he came, he came down, he had just gotten out. So I made him, uh, he was in the IRR. So like he, he agreed to, to shave his beard off and get a haircut and he put his blues on and came and gave me my first salute. And, oh, that was cool. Yeah. That was really cool of him to do it. Um, a guy named Whit Moody, he was a, he was a sergeant when he got out. Um, and then, so then you go to Quantico, uh, well, before I went to Quantico, I ended up having to wait for my, uh, to class up at, uh, TBS, um, the basic school in, in Quantico. So I, I ended up working PTAD for my recruiter. Uh, he had been a Citadel grad and the Citadel was just down the street. So I worked, they, they called a special projects officer, which is just, you know, the sort of like code for, we don't know what billet to give you. <laughs> yeah. So we're just going to like give you this title. So I, I just sat in the, I, I helped out with the JROTC unit or the nut JR, the, the, the ROTC unit at the Citadel. And, you know, I wrote their the letters of instructions for like their hikes and the, the small training exercises they would do. We'd take them down to the obstacle course all the time. It was just a good way to like stay in shape and get used to some military culture. All the, you have, the, you have those staff NCOs, who are all there to be uh, MESEPs, you know, they're, and they're trying to get commissioned and become lieutenants. And so, you know, I'm this boot lieutenant who had, and literally hasn't even been through TBS yet. So I, 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 the most dangerous of all officers, because I, I, I have some inkling of rank, but no clue how to use any of it. And, you know, yeah. so like, luckily I had these guys who were like, you know, one step behind me and, well, I mean, you could argue way ahead of me because they were all, staff NCOs, but, and they would like take me aside and be like, Hey, don't do that. You're an idiot. You know, this is, and they were, those, these are dudes that were doing MESEP at, at the Citadel at the Citadel. Yeah. Oh man. Why would somebody put themselves through that? Like, I don't know. Why not go back to like, you know, the, like college of Charleston, just up the road, it's six to one girls to guys. And I was just like, you know, I knew I wanted to join the Marine Corps, but I I didn't want to go to the Citadel because I was like, why subject yourself to it on your free time? Yeah, no, exactly. I was, uh, I'm from, or I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know, all the way up until high school. So in the South, everybody's heard of the Citadel, obviously. Yeah, sure. And then I was down in South Carolina for a, an MRAP course while I was a mechanic. And um, I was like, well, I'm going to drive over there and check it out because I've always heard about it. And it was like way smaller than I thought. I was like, it's very this- small and it's a, it's a really weird culture down there. It's very big in like growing up in South Carolina, I, uh, I always knew Citadel grads, but it was more of like this nebulous concept because everybody who works in business or local government or the, the big lawyers, they're all Citadel grads. So, and it's once they get like only 30% of Citadel grads grad uh, commission in the military, the rest uh, just do it to get the ring and it makes it like a good old boys club. And you go, you shake hands yeah, in, in a way that shows off your ring in job interviews for preferential treatment. That's like a big thing in South Carolina. So um, it, it's it, kind of, it, it's kind of like going to USC down here in Southern California. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a, the little mafia of those dudes. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a so, really interesting concept that people put themselves through that. Because when I was there visiting, I saw a dude getting yelled at by, uh, I don't even know, you know, one of the knobs getting, you know, <laughs> yelled at while he was oh, trying yeah, to leave t- to go home or something. Well, the, th- the thing they like to yell at them is the seniors will yell at them. It's like, how many days until I get my ring? And then they have to know how many days it is until the ring ceremony. And then oh, they have to like, yeah, just like dumb stuff. And then they'll just like haze the crap out of them. But, um, but yeah, anyway, I, I finished there. I, I, I was there for like eight weeks or whatever it was while I was waiting for, uh, TBS to start. And then I, sh- I headed up to Quantico, uh, checked into Alpha Company, uh, old Arctic Alpha. So we ended up being a winter company in Quantico. Uh, and 
you know, you go through your six months of everything and they start you off at squad level and there's a lot of orders writing and you have to learn how to do fit reps and, uh, administrative and history. And it's like a college semester, uh, but you're getting yelled at by what you assume are very experienced captains until you become a a captain (laughs) at that level. And then you realize like, uh, it's like, Oh man, that guy was just a Lieutenant like a couple months ago and Uh. he's acting like he's AJ squared away. Um, but you know when when you're there and you don't know anything if you're if you don't have the benefit of being a prior enlisted guy uh, you know I was just like I was I one of the themes of my sort of career has always been being terrified that I'm going to fuck something up yeah and so I I tend to like ask a million questions and pay a lot of attention and I like I think some of the reasons I I study as hard as I do when I go to like uh, courses is because I'm just like I, I, I'm like always convinced I'm going to fucking fail so I just like. Uh, I did so. I did okay uh, while I was there. I was in the top third. Um, well, it's always know, a good idea to like be you know tell yourself to just shut up and listen. You know, instead of yeah. And and I'd heard a lot. Of, I'd had a, the benefit of talking to a lot of guys, and they were just like, you know, just shut up and color. There's going to be a lot of like fuck fuck games and stuff, and you're it's going to be very tedious. But if if you just play the game, uh, you'll get a lot out of it. it was you know, it, was TBS more coursework or field work? So it's both. Um, it, it, everything is done in like a package. So you start your squad package, and then they'll give you a bunch of coursework, and you'll spend a week in the classroom. You know, you're and you're showing up in like this classroom at like zero seven, and you're just getting death by PowerPoint from all these instructors until eighteen hundred. Yeah. And then you'll do like a sand table exercise, or you'll do something to like put it into a more like solid concept, and then you'll do like those tactical decision games and discussion groups and stuff. And then the next week you'll do something out on like a range that's sort of like a it's like a walk portion. So you'll do like a, a rock walk version of it. You know, hey, we're gonna go out and like get in patrol formations and talk about um, you know LZ ops or or whatever it is that's gonna go into the field portion. And then the next weekend uh, they'll they'll chopper you in to uh, you know whatever TA sixteen part of Quantico, whatever the the training area they decide on is, and then pick you back up on friday so they'll they'll leave you in the field for a week and so everything you do you you do classroom prac app field and it's just like that for you know six months uh so you go from squad to platoon to platoon reinforced to heavy weapons some a little bit of engineering exposure artillery um call for fire a little tiny like exposure to close air support uh, and then I've had a guy tell me that he could control air cause he did it at TBS. I'm like, get the fuck yeah, out of here. No, no fucking way. Like I, I <laughs> did, I did one, me. I did one nine line at TBS and that was because my, my staff platoon commander had been a, uh, a, a, a Huey pilot, you know, who had done nothing but cast in, uh, in Iraq. And so he was just like, and by, by me, me saying I did a nine line, he just stood over my shoulder and told me what to say the way we, we used to do with yeah. like our boots you know it was just like all right you know when you read this piece guy. of paper <laughs> exactly so uh but you, i mean a lot of people hated it but i thought i thought that if you really paid attention and read between the lines of you know various instructors being braggarts or whatever you know you, you could you could glean a lot out of it you know what do you think the coolest thing you did at tbs was the coolest thing at tbs i think was um well i so like I liked all the obstacle course and the e course stuff. Like I you know I listened to Demaro's episode and I know that he was like such a he, he's a huge Spartan race guy, 
Um, and you know that's sort of mm-hmm. where it all came from is the e course there. Like that's a, that's just a lot of fun. I mean, you're running around the woods with an M16 and you're 21 years old and it's just like it's like fuck yeah, this is cool. But like I think the coolest thing we did were the the squad on, or the platoon on platoon attacks where we had like you know you you got dropped off in like a mount town and then they gave us sesums and we had shit tons of smoke grenades and pop-up flares and we set booby traps and uh i got i got left i got, I got made the platoon commander on the defense so you would have an offense and defense days uh in a mount town and we had this giant building that we had to defend against first platoon and so you know you know when you're defense you're supposed to just like die in place eventually yeah so i decided i had already gotten my the whole time you're there you're competing for an mos you know you put down your choices and you get your military occupational specialty towards the end based on your class standing on leadership and fitness and academics and so on and then field field evaluations from instructors uh so i'd already gotten artillery i i wanted infantry uh and then in ground intel because you could also get the infantry mos and go to recon uh if you had that so just like everybody else you know i wanted to be uh you know old captain america and run around shooting bad guys in the face i got artillery which is which is it turned out great i was really like upset at the time but uh it turned out great because i loved everything i've gotten to do uh especially once i got to anglico and stuff but um so <laughs> at that point i didn't care uh and i wasn't like trying so hard to be by the book when they gave me this de- defense so i was just like okay we're gonna have fun with this and first i'm just gonna make first platoon's life as difficult as possible so i I wrote this order, and we stood around the terrain model, and I, I basically told him, I was like, hey, we're going to treat this house like home alone. We're <laughs> going to set booby traps everywhere. We're not going to, like, mass our fires. We're just going to, like, uh, act like a, an insurgency in the house. And I want to, like, draw them in and then just, like, start picking them off one by one. And so the guys got really, really creative and just came up with all these, like, ridiculous shit. You know, there were dudes, like, hiding in the rafters and you know, popping out of yeah. like toilets and it just, it just got ridiculous. But the staff, the, the platoon commander, the thought it was fucking hilarious. Uh, he was just like, it was like this engineer guy and he was just standing there laughing as we were just like harassing first platoon for two hours. That was probably the, the funnest thing I did there. So you what was shoot, it? What was it like when you shit out of each other with these, these paint rounds? Yeah. Those fucking hurt too. Yeah. Well, Especially yeah. if you get the larger ones that are, uh, there's like two different kinds. Um, yeah. We all, we have the little ones, so they're, they're not terrible. Uh, but if you get if you get op- uh, like open skin or like it gets under your mask, like you're gonna have a huge ass welt. Yeah, yeah. I had one shoot hit me in the fingernail one time, man. That fucking did not feel good. Ooh. Um, so you went to so then you go to Fort Sill, you do all that yeah. training, and that's you know that's like how much six months, right? That's six months of j- straight up classroom time. You're yeah. just you're learning ballistic math, and you want to kill yourself. And I, I think everybody there was an alcoholic the whole time we were there because Fort Sill, Oklahoma, is just a terrible place. While you were there, was there a unit that you were trying to get to that you were like, okay, this one, I want to go East Coast or West Coast, or did you? Well, even I, care? So I already, I already knew where I was going. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, I knew I was going to three eleven, uh, out in Twenty Nine Palms. I found out at the, the very last day of our very last field exercise, they they gave us our our orders, um, and I knew I was going there. I didn't know what that meant, and then they had, so they had this. Uh, it's, it's kind of like a career day where they you, you go to the staff and all the staff officers are there who have been stationed in all these different places and you, you get to talk to them to like get a sense of what the place is like family ways and schools and housing and so on and uh, you know I'm there with my with my ex and uh, the the 
the funny theme that every single person we talked to who went to who had been stationed in Twenty Bond Palms is they always started their spiel with saying the words in this order. They're like, "It's not that bad," and then you just so you're just like, "Oh my god, this is gonna be horrible," and then you get there and like after a while you realize, okay, the training's very good, and you're two hours from Vegas and L.A. and San Diego, and yes, it is miserable there, and it, but as long as you have a car. Um, it's really not that bad. And so you end up being one of those people who ends up saying that same thing. Uh, so I got to, yeah, I mean, already school was kind of a joke. Um, everything's open book, open note, and it doesn't very well prepare you to be an artillery officer in the Marine Corps. Um, you, so then we got to 29 Palms uh, in December of 2009 at this point because you're in training for so long with... Uh, TBS and, and Fort Sill. Uh, and I got immediately assigned to 1st Battalion, 7th Marines to be an FO. Um, and I got really lucky with that because I got to get sent down to Coronado for two months during mm. the workup to, to go to uh, the EWTG PAC, uh, Expeditionary Warfare Training Group Pacific, their boat school. So I got to go become a maritime navigator and coxswain for the Zodiacs. And so I just, I spent a month doing raid stuff in the Bay of San Diego, which was so much fun. Um, what does that entail? Because I've never had anybody on that's done anything like that. So what, what do you, so, so you go down there and, uh, you take nav classes and you have to learn like the rules of the road and basically get a boating license. And then you have to learn celestial navigation and lat long, uh, as opposed to MGRS. And you have to account for tides and drift. And so you have to learn all these like NOAA national Geographic charts and then where to where to buy like where to get the charts how to order them um how to read them how to use a, a sextant and a, and a compass and slide rules and all that stuff um and so you do that and then uh, for the coxswain course you have to learn like basic boat maintenance for the the 55 horsepower engine you have to build the boat um which comes it comes rolled up in this big rubber like it looks like a big rubber duffel bag and then you like roll it out and then you stick these metal deck plates in, which then makes it rigid. And then you have there's compartments that you have to learn, uh, you know, the order to to fill them in, and if one of them breaches, how to uh, plug it. And then, you know, they, then you have to take that navigation and uh, you know learn how to apply that on the little compass that's on the the gunnel tube and. Uh, you know, you spend hours and hours and hours out at night, especially uh, <clears throat> in the Bay of San Diego, uh, going doing nautical navigation runs from you know this buoy to that buoy to this light or the Mexican border or all the way up to uh, basically almost Pacific Beach sometimes. Hmm. Uh, and it, it's good fun. It's it's pretty cold out there in the water in February because you know the water's only about fifty degrees. So after a while, you start to your body temperature starts to lower enough, even in San Diego, that you're you're pretty you're pretty cold. But um, it's that's just a com- so much that's fun. a common misconception for people that have never been to Southern California. They think it's like warm water, but it's no, pretty it's, pretty I, chilly. I, yeah. I, I I didn't know that until the first time I came out, and I just like left off the side of the boat I was on, and like all my friends were laughing. They were just like, "Ha ha!" Like <laughs> it's pretty yeah, it's pretty cold. So how long was that course again? Two months. It, it, well, it's a month, and then you have to do so. That's a month down there getting. Uh, qualified, and then you do a month of, uh, you go from EWTG pack to SOTG, which is now EOTG, um, Special Operations Training Group, which is now Expeditionary Operations Training Group. Um, you do the raid packages with them to get qualified to leave on the on the MU. Um, and so we headed up to, f- you, you start your raids down there, 
uh, in Coronado, and then you move up to Firebase Gloria right by First Anglico CP, mm-hmm. and you do off of uh, you launch at the Del Mar boat base, and, and then you land at Red Beach, pretty much right near where our office used to be, um, and you have to do these. You'll get picked up by a, a Navy. Um, fuck, I don't even remember what they're called. The it, not an LCAC. It's like a oh the LCU. LCU, yeah, the LCU will pick you up and then drop you over the horizon, at like probably about twenty-two nautical miles out um, after sundown, and then you've got to navigate and hit with about a, like a hundred meter error left and right on the beach, and then you splash your scout swimmers and they go in and then you know, neutralize anybody on the beach and then you have to hit your target and make the timeline. And then getting back out to the surf is always the hard part. Cause it was like, it was like the bad time of the year where like surf was like really up. And so like we, you know, these boats are old and rickety and they've been beaten up so many times from so many classes going through. And so like the, the engines kept failing and like trying to, trying to get through a surf passage with just paddles is, uh, it's like damn near impossible. I think everybody's uh, seen the videos of the bud students getting flipped over. Yeah, that, and that's a whole that's a whole like week that they do with you down in that course. They call it engine appreciation week, so they don't let you use an engine for like the first week just to make you <laughs> really happy when you finally do it. So they make you do the surf pads just with the the paddles, and you you cannot get out through Red Beach almost in Coronado without an engine. So like you just the whole point is just just get you beaten up in the surf zone, hmm. um, and then you have to carry the boats on your head, which weigh, you know, a couple hundred pounds. I think like, I think it's like 300 pounds with the deck plates in. Um, and so, you know, you've got six guys and if you're not all relatively the same height, it's pretty, uh, pretty awful for whoever's the, either the tallest or the shortest yeah. person. And, uh, you have to carry it and they call it the trail of tears and you have to carry it about like three miles on your heads. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's, That's it's fun stuff. a lot, it's a lot of the amphib phase of the recon, uh, school brc um we don't do the longest day but um you know it's it's most of what they do down there uh it's this, it's in the same boathouse same instructors same everything yeah yeah i remember uh, seeing them when you so people that go through the haven't because i had a guy hit me up on instagram the other day saying that he's thinking about becoming an 0861 now because he's been talking to me on instagram and listening to the podcast yeah uh, and that's where you go to school is coronado and you actually see the dudes going through like brc and shit right there running around yeah. that pt field and everything they all, they all have the ropes on them they, so they call them ropers when they're yep. a boot like that you know and uh the other fun thing is like when you, if you're staying in the the hotel there like uh, i was there during tcp school and uh it was like sunday night and all of a sudden just like right outside my window it just sounds like baghdad and it was uh buds kicking off hell week Oh, yeah. You know, the instructors are just like throwing flashbangs at these kids and just like chasing a dude, literally just chasing a dude right behind him with a saw full of blanks, just like scaring the shit out of him. And it was pretty funny. And you just hear those like just panic ensuing down below you. Uh, That's fun stuff. Yeah, hey, it's, it's such a great place. The scout swimmers, is that a different course? Yeah. So th- there's three courses in the, in the boathouse. So there's the navigator, the cocks and uh, actually four, uh, the scout swimmers and then the mechs, the mechs. <laughs> they kind of have it rough because like they they have to do so much work and the only work that they're going to do is at like zero two when we get back you know yeah. they have to like fix all the boats up but and then they don't get to go out so they they basically just get you know you, you're like throwing your keys at the valet and they're they're left to clean up your mess at the end of the night but. standard mechanic life that's how i felt as a mechanic dude i'm like we're fixing everybody else's fuck-ups and we don't even get to drive these damn yeah, things ex- exactly um, the scout swimmers, they had it tough. They, they get really, uh, they get hazed pretty hard, um, during that course. So they, they do these run, swim, run, fin runs pretty much every day before they start all their, 
their classes and they have to do like surf observation and uh, you know beach survey and then they have to those are the guys that have to get extra uh, they get like extra hand-to-hand training and basically they teach them how to like how to bury yourself in sand and wait till like a sentry walks past you on the beach and then just like burst out like a like one of those spiders that buries himself in the ground and then just like slit the guy's throat and then disappear again. So they, they do some pretty cool shit. Um, and so we learned a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, once we were done with that and then once we got qualified with, um, SOTG, uh, I chopped over officially to one seven and I was with them. We went on the 31st Mew and the 31st Mew is everybody tells you it's not a real deployment. And I didn't understand that until I had done my Afghan deployment. Uh, but it's, you know, you, you go to Okinawa and you're sitting there for about a month and a half and then you load boats and you, you barely get to know anybody on your ship and you, you go do some token exercises in Thailand and, uh, uh the Philippines, uh, and then you go back home and then you spend another month in Okinawa just drinking your face off and nobody wants to work cause you know, we're just, you're leaving the gear that you have there in place for the next guys. So yeah. you're not, you're not like doing maintenance so much, uh, if you're the if you're in the battalion landing team and so you just you just kind of rot in japan for a little bit and um if they're not allowing you off the base which happens from time to time based on local politics uh it can be pretty miserable we were lucky we we were there during a time when the 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 okinawans were fine with us so we got to see a lot of the island and explore turn it into kind of like a a month's vacation on the backside. i hear there's like always protesters at the gate no matter what and then like you know it's like always like a little small little group of protesters uh, yeah like of like four guys and i've like i've also heard that they're paid by the chinese just to like so dissent you know within the fucking that may be local community there there, i mean there's there's people that definitely don't like us they call us the gaijin you know the outsiders and um some restaurants will kind of like shoo you out the door if you try to go in there um (laughs) what's the best what's the best food you had while you're in oki shark i had shark teriyaki it was fucking delicious really yeah there was this there's this really famous sushi place that my my old boss uh major morales he was a fifth anglico guy he knew you know the island very very well and we had uh this big you know they bring out this thing it just looks like this big dragon boat and it's sushi you know of every kind that you can think of and all you know you try like a billion different rolls and uh the shark teriyaki was really good it's really salty which I, i like salty food so it was pretty good huh very tender um you know, just kind of melted in your mouth. And then uh, they they also had a, a Mongolian barbecue place where we did, like, uh, you could get, like, emu, ostrich, kangaroo, water buffalo, crocodile, like, anything. And they just all throw it in a big wok. And then you try all this different meat. That was pretty cool. Uh, you know, the, the best part of that meal was, you know, going to, like, Singapore for a week. and uh, Singapore's great. Yeah, God, that place is so much fun. It's expensive. People that have never been, it's it is super expensive, and it's super. I love it when we're walking around and people are like, "This place is so clean." Like, I wish the U.S. could be this clean. I'm like, dude, they beat people here. That's why it's this clean. It's like if you throw trash down, they're gonna cane you. Well, and it's easy to find you too because the entire country is 35 square miles. You know, yeah. So think about that. It's like less than the size of. Is it really? uh, That's that's it. Yeah, that's it. It's like maybe it's like 35 miles across. Maybe not square miles, but. Uh, it's very, very small, you know, so they, they have to like, so I get sent down there again after that deployment, uh, for a month with one seven as a uh, subject matter expert for fires. <clears throat> and we were there in the jungle for like a week, um, as well as, you know, just kind of hanging out downtown, but, uh, their training area is like, you know, teeny, teeny, tiny because the, the, you know, real estate is such a premium there. And so they yeah. outsource a lot of their stuff to like Darwin 
And then mm. they have fighter debts in like Idaho and like permanently debted in other countries because, you know, they don't have that kind of training space. But, uh, yeah, Okinawa was great. And then the Philippines was a total shit show because we ended up in, everybody else went to Crow Valley for that big exercise that always goes out there, uh, all the BLT. But the, the raid company, we went to Ternate and we landed. Uh, and our company commander, you know, none of the other lieutenants liked him. Uh, and I, I, was such a boot, you know, like I'm the first person to ever acknowledge that like my first deployment, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, cause as an artillery officer, you always get shit out to the infantry as an FO before you've ever been in a platoon. So like, yeah. you don't know what to reasonably expect, uh, of the fleet. And so you're like, you're just kind of hanging around and trying to look cool, but like, you don't really know that uh, anything other than how to call for fire and then just follow the grunt in front of you. Um, so we we landed in Ternate and the the boat raid company commander for the the Filipinos, uh, he wants to hang out with our company commander, who's this captain, and he invites him to his hooch one night, and they start drinking and swapping war stories, and uh, you know all the lieutenants were all sitting down on the beach with like our you know just like sitting there with like our M4s across our knees, you know just like kind of chatting and looking out at the water, and then we see this private it was like a pfc dragging our company commander down the beach in nothing but udt shorts <laughs> and we're like what the fuck so we like run over and uh he is like missing his weapon and he's like almost completely naked except for these you know uh swim shorts and we're like what's going on and he is just drunk as just drunk as can be and he doesn't he doesn't know where he is uh we ask him where his rifle is and he's like it's cool it's cool it's, i got it it's all good and then like so two of our lieutenants they just like run off into the jungle. Turns out he had gotten drunk and in his drunken stupor just like handed his rifle to a Filipino for, and taken a bottle of brandy. And so in the Filipino's mind, like, that's a fair trade. Yeah. So we try to take the rifle back and the guy's like, no, it's mine. And so they have to basically like fight this guy and like, so now all the Filipinos are pissed at us because we've just robbed one of their guys hmm. in the in the middle of the night. Yeah. And uh, so now they're pissed at us. Like, there's all this shouting going on. The company commander's not making any sense. And then then he starts accusing us of mutiny. He's like, he's like, don't you question me, boot? He's like, fuck you. He's like, this is this is a mutiny. He's like, lay your weapons at my feet. And I'm like, no, you're drunk. That's not a lawful command. And he's like, he he takes a swing at the the our, our JTAC, and then he pokes our company gunny in the eye. And the company gunny, this this gunny who's just not to be <laughs> fucked with. Uh, this guy named Gunny Love, he just decks the company commander. And we're expecting the battalion commander to show up in camp any minute. Like, he was scheduled to be there that night. Luckily, only the, you know, the, the S3 showed up, this this other captain. And we're like, sir, you got to do something. Like, this is out of control. This guy's, like, threatening to have us all shot for mutiny. And, you know, we had we don't know where his NVGs are. And, you know, this is a fucking mess. And, uh, and he's just like, all right, go go up to where the Marines are. He's like, just bed down for the night. And then he's like, but that next morning there was a, a super typhoon started coming into the, to the Philippines. So they, they, they extract us out of there, uh, onto the, uh, the Essex. And, um, we go back up to Subic Bay to link up with the rest of the boats in the, in the ARG. Cause we had to go to humanitarian operation after that. And, uh, so we had to request mass to the, the battalion commander and explain everything. So we had to like roll, write these statements and stuff. And we show up and one by one, we go into the battalion's battalion CO's office and like lay out is this exactly what happened. He hit him. This guy hit that. He's drunk. He's, you know, da 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 da. And, uh, 
by the time I walked back to the Harper's Ferry, the, the, the company commander's stateroom had been emptied out and he was gone. Oh shit. And I was like, yeah. So we, we ended up getting a new company commander halfway through the deployment. And, uh, and then we lost the first sergeant cause his testicles randomly, uh, spun in his sack. It's testicular torsion is what it's called. Uh, so he, just, he just woke up. Yeah, he just like woke up one morning and his balls were like broken. And he was just like, ah! That so happened to a off. guy, to one of my guys in Iraq. Yeah. It just, I don't know how it happens. God God willing, inshallah. I hope it never happens to me. But yeah, so we, we the entire command deck of the uh, the company changed halfway through that deployment. And it was just a total shit show. Uh, did that did that captain in a did the company commander end up getting kicked out for that or just no belong to somewhere so, else? so the thing is so the what i heard and then you know there's again i was a second lieutenant at the time so you know you hear the rumor mill and you don't know how sure it is but the, i do know that he got pulled out instead of being formally relieved they moved him to the mu s3 hmm. so they pulled him out of the blt and put him at mu headquarters in the s3 and uh, what i heard was is that the the Mew commander who was a, a you know full bird colonel was up for his first star to be a brigadier general? Yeah, and um, he didn't want it on his record that he'd had to formally relieve a company commander on his Mew, so he soft relieved him and just moved him. Oh you know? man, that's so, so fucked that guy up. Ended up. Yeah, that that guy ended up becoming an I and I for uh, some reserve unit in Texas. You know, he's just like if that would have been an enlisted guy, he would have been in the brig. Oh, he would have been shot on the beach. <laughs> you yeah, kidding that's, me? that's man, that's crazy. They strung him up from the yard arm. Yeah, that the Mew is the proving ground for general officers for a lot of them. For oh, the yeah. infantry general officers, it seems like well, it um, seems like the commandant or the sergeant major of the Marine Corps too. Yeah, Sergeant Major Black yeah. out there doing his thing. Not a fan. I've made saw, it. I saw I've made it known. Day. I've made it known on my page. I'm not a fan. Uh, <laughs> did you? Yeah. Well, I did that. Uh, I did the New York City Veterans Day parade here this last. This last year, and I, I laid the wreath uh, at the presidential ceremony. It was me and Master Guns Escalante, and uh, yeah, Sergeant Major Black walks by. And he like gives me this sideways look, like he you can tell he recognized me, but he can't place me. And I'm just like, don't look at him, don't look at him. <laughs> just walk away. You know, you <laughs> know, a lot of a lot of guys, a lot of guys, um, seeing his praises online and stuff that worked with him back when he was an infantry guy, and maybe he was great and stuff, but. My experience with him as an enlisted dude and him being the sergeant major was just not good. Like, well, yeah, and like what he said to us on the San Diego when we got when we were on the trap mission for Yemen. Um, yeah, we can talk about that later if we want to keep going chronologically. But uh, no, you can go ahead. We can. Well, yeah. So we were we were stuck there on the USS San Diego. It was the re, I was with the recon company and we were the the trap force. Um, for the Yemen, the Yemen embassy in Sanaa, which was being threatened by the Houthis in 2014. And, um, he comes on and so like your ship, it was, it was the Macon Island, Macon Island, making yeah, babies. The, yeah. The Macon Island and the Comstock were going to, they're like, Hey, we're leaving CENTCOM. We're going back to uh, Singapore first. And then we're going to go to Hawaii. He's like, you guys are going to stay here on station and do this mission for another two weeks until the 26th Mew shows up and relieves you. And we're just like, staring daggers at him it was like man fuck this like we couldn't go anywhere and there were all these like there you know we were supposed to be doing vbss stuff like you know counter piracy but they wouldn't let us go do that even though it was happening in the ao they were giving it to like seals and stuff mm-hmm. and uh so we're just sitting there just rotting off of yemen and he's like oh yeah by the way you're gonna stay for three more weeks while we go home and drink and it's like fuck you and he's like i don't understand why you look so upset and i was just like D- don't you 
don't you, man? Like, come on. He's like, well, I, I don't, I don't care if you don't like it. You just have to do it. And I was like, that, that was just a very bad leadership presentation to me. I was just like, man, you could have phrased this differently. Hundred percent, man. The whole thing, I, I was not, um, I was not a fan because, I mean, just everything. Like when they went to Iwo Jima and they stopped the guys from going to the summit because a few people fell out. You know, yeah. like shit like that. And then the the harassment, like he was the biggest dick about people's reenlistment packages and stuff like that. Oh, boy. And I had to send shit back to Tracy Offit, you know, to have him fucking do stuff because he wouldn't sign off on anything. Like he wouldn't he wasn't going to sign off on Flores's reenlistment and stuff like that. Maybe that had to do with the fact that he was angling for Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps and he wanted his metrics to look good. Dude, he I remember him going around the ship telling people they needed to put um they needed to put duct tape on their fucking Nalgene bottles unless they were black. Like if they were any color than black, they weren't tactical. It's like, oh, dude, we're boy. on a fucking ship. Like get the fuck <laughs> out of here. It's like Space Force with their new uh woodland camis <laughs> yeah i mean this dude he i don't know man he just he just it was like he went out of his way to make life more difficult for anybody for everybody it's not like we were becoming yeah, you know technically that's, that's, or tactically more to. proficient he was just being a dick and every, i don't know but whatever he served major marine corps good on him he he made it to the top you yeah, know it's a political game sure at Colonel that point Trollinger is a general now too so he is you know they got an award i think they got an award for command team of the year after that deployment and well, every- my favorite, my, my favorite was when uh, were you there or was it just? The, I think it was just the captains when when they did the command climate survey. No, I year. wasn't there, but you told me about it. You can go ahead if you'd like. Yeah, so they were like, the command climate survey is supposed to give the commander a, a, a good sense of you know how people are satisfied with his leadership or the the, the, the general atmosphere in the command, and uh, it's supposed to be anonymous. But what we learned is, uh, you know. We were unhappy as the captains who were doing, you know, a lot of work, and then the majors were taking a lot of the credit, and then we were getting that was only leading to more work uh, at the detriment of the mission. Often, you know, they would like they would start tacking on and levying more. Briefing uh, was more important than like briefing brief than actions. You know, yeah, exactly. And I I brought that up during this meeting. So like we we go down there, and uh, he's like he, he calls down all the captains. And he's like, I want to know why the hell you're so goddamn upset with me. And we're like, well, how do you know it was us? And he apparently he can filter the results of the survey by rank. And mm-hmm. there was only 10 captains. So he can pull us all in and he knows that it's us, <laughs> which makes which completely annihilates the point of it being anonymous. anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, well, what the fuck is your problem? And so I like, God bless him. Uh, Pat Zuber, who is uh, the, who was the recon company commander, uh, he acted like the social tank that we all got behind. You know, he he braved the first comment and uh, <laughs> then opened the door for us to air the airing of the grievances. And uh, he was like, you know, X, Y, Z, this is my problem. And then I was like, sir, I'd like to see a little bit more focus on uh, content rather than uh, format. You know, we're spent... We're getting told we have to redo PowerPoints because the bullets aren't right when we have a time-sensitive target. We only have four hours to strike this target. I'm spending three and a half of them doing formatting on PowerPoint rather than doing rehearsals with my guys. And he's like, well, who told you you need to be doing that? And I was like, you did, sir. And he goes, no, I didn't. Shut the fuck up. And I was like, okay, Roger that. That tells me I will never be honest with you ever again. Yeah. You know, I was like, wow. Yeah, I wasn't a fan. It was in, and so before this, you had gone to Afghanistan and stuff like that. So like going from like a a deployment like that to a deployment like the Mew. Yeah. It's a tough pill to swallow, you know? It was, you know, I was, so jumping back, you know, we did the, 
we finished that 31st Mew, and then I went down, you know, did a couple of subject matter exchanges back down in Southeast Asia. Um, in the meantime, I, I, I went and acted as the, the fire direction officer of uh, Mike Battery 311. Uh, you want to explain the role of the Yeah, uh, so you're, you're, you're the guy in the, in the battery who's doing all the computational procedures. So, you know, you receive a fire mission from the forward observer up on the hill, and you're the guy that has to process it and basically dial the guns in. Uh, send all that data down to the gun line uh, to get rounds on target. So there are five predi- uh, requirements for accurate predictive fire in artillery, and the FDO is responsible for four of them. Um, the only other one that's is of the uh, the FO, you know, his his accurate target location uh, that he sends you. So it, it's a lot of math and it's a lot of nerdery, and you're sitting in a a tent behind the the howitzers and. You know, it, it's a necessary evil, but it, the, the good part about that time was that, um, you know, my complaint that I didn't have any experience in the battery on my first deployment, which made me kind of a shitty lieutenant, um, that sort of got started to get fixed because I now had six staff NCOs, all these staff sergeants, you know, I had the comm chief and the, the FDC chief and uh, the motor T chief and, you know, various other dudes um, who were they're mentoring me, you know, you, you, you mentor your young guys, but the, the staff NCOs will mentor a young Lieutenant, uh, if they're good. And, uh, so I started realizing and, and becoming a better officer and realizing that I needed to up my game. And, and it wasn't about looking cool. It was about doing what was good for the Marines. And, um, you know, I was probably still making some dumb shit decisions. I can think of a couple off the top of my head that, you know, you look back at yourself when you're a young officer and you realize that you were probably every cliche that anybody's ever said about <laughs> lieutenants, you know, it's like, you know, are these my men kind of bullshit? And you're just like, oh, fuck. Like, I, yeah, I did that. But, like, it's a learning process, and you, you have to learn to forgive yourself eventually. But uh, Everybody's so I, awkward when they show up to their unit. You know, oh, yeah. everyone, no one knows what the hell is going on. Yeah, I think by the end I, I had it a little bit better. Uh, but w- what I really got, when I really started to come into my own was when I got uh, back to 1-7. Uh, so I went back to the infantry because I knew they were going to Afghanistan, and I as soon as I got back from my first deployment, I, I heard that this was happening. I marched straight into the XO's office. I was like, sir, I was like, I've already been out with 1-7. They know me. I want to be the guy to go take this team uh, for their Afghan deployment. And he was like, okay. So he put me right on the slate. And um, That's pretty lucky so, to get two back-to-back FO positions. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, I was going to be the, the fire support coordinator at the battalion. So, okay. I mean, I was like king FO. but Even uh, so. But, but yeah, especially with the same unit, you know, that kind of continuity is great. Um, and what was great is that the, the sergeants that I had on the first deployment, who were my FOs, I got to send to THP school and they became my JTACs on the second deployment and they oh, stayed nice. with the same companies they had been with. Nice. So there was continuity there too. So everybody, you know, guys who were with Suicide Charlie stayed with Suicide Charlie. Guys who were with Dog Company stayed with Dog Company. So how different uh, was your workup for the Mew compared to? Well, okay, so that's 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 the big thing is the 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 thirty first Mew, and another reason it's not really real deployment is you don't do a, a, a like what I would call a genuine workup. You do a few exercises, you know, ten days here, ten days that, but it's not a it's not like a huge package that's like a master plan the way it is when you're going to Afghanistan. You know, that workup for Afghanistan, we were they, they basically the way our our colonel did it, he was like. Uh, he did, we would do 10 days in the field, four days, you know, get a 96, you go home, then you do a normal work week. Then you do 10 days in the field and a 96 and a normal work week. And we did that for seven months. So you're in the field a fuck ton, but mm-hmm. you got really, really good at your job. Um, 
and you got very comfortable being uncomfortable. So <laughs> we did a lot of uh, we did a lot of shooting, um, and then we did our. By the time we got to our Mojave Viper, uh, which is now ITX, um, you know, our final qualifying exercise, we did. I think we did pretty well, um, and uh, you know, I I was blessed with a team that I had a lot of self starters, really motivated young Marines. But the best thing I had the staff sergeant who is. He was a lap mover to 0861. We're the best. That's what I've heard. He, yeah, he was a <laughs> he was an 1171 water purification specialist originally. <laughs> Polly Shore. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and his name was Chris Lewis, and he was fuck. He was good, man. He was just like not only was he good, but he was personable, and mm. the Marines loved him. And he was he and I got along really really well, and so we had a great dialogue, and and we worked you know worked very well together, and. Uh, the, the battalion just absolutely fucking loved him and they loved our guys and they remembered me, you know, I'm not going to say that they love me, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think we got along <laughs> and, uh, so we, we ended up having a very great deployment. You know, we landed in Sangin in March of, uh, 2012. Uh, and that was tough cause my mom died like the weekend before I left. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was, I knew she was sick with cancer, but I, my family had kind of kept it from me how bad she was. Um, cause they, they knew I was getting ready to go and they were kind of like protecting me. And then she died the very last day of EMV. And I basically finished Sertex at, uh, EMV and, um, jumped straight on a plane and, uh, made it there. And she, you know, she died about four hours later. Um, and then I buried her and then a week later, uh, I was headed, or, or probably about, probably just under two weeks later, I was in Afghanistan, and then four days later, I had dropped a bomb and killed a bunch of people. So, like, you know, I, I never, I never had like a combat experience where I was, you know, I, I, I didn't have any of my guys get killed um, personally. You know, we we lost some guys in the battalion, and you know, um, you know, I still remember all their names and everything, but they, you know, they weren't that close to me. Uh, being a battalion and then uh but the hard part the hard part for me in the deployment was you know i just dealt with my mom's death and i i, ba- I really i basically hadn't dealt with it mm. and then by the end of the deployment after dropping all these bombs on all these people you know i started feeling like this massive guilt thing about it and i just like didn't want to do it by the end i was just like you know finding myself watching dudes dig ieds and uh just being like oh please just walk away like don't make me kill you today and then i'd do it and i was just like you just get really, really numb to the whole thing. But yeah, that, that was, that was, my, that was the uh, trauma or whatever. Sangin is a rough spot, man. And, There's always something Sangin, going yeah, on there too. Sangin is always, always fucking busy with fighting. It's the, it's the heartland. So we, I was in Fob Jackson. Okay. We That's landed and we ripped out with three, seven. Uh, and I knew shit had gotten real as soon as, you know, we, we, we went through Kyrgyzstan, the normal route from March air force base. And, um, you know, it was, uh, we landed in Kyrgyzstan and did the thing in Manas for like three days and then hit Leatherneck and did, uh, RSO and I, you know, you BZO your weapon, you get all your in-country briefs, you know, the JTACs, we all, you know, get, uh, we have to do our in-country. Take that test qual- and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff for the, the, the ROEs and the spins for the local, uh, AO. And then we got on these 53s, uh, and we landed in, uh, Fob Jackson and uh, which is now I, they changed the name to like Sabit Kadam. They wanted all Sabit Afghan Kadam. Yeah, yep. after a while. Um, and I know you know that dance, man, because uh, I was there yeah. the following summer. Yeah. So, 
as soon as I landed, I was I was I walk off the tail ramp of the fifty three, and I've still got my sea bag on my shoulder, and all of a sudden there's like the the whole ground just shakes, and there's this huge explosion, and there was a massive IED right outside the gate in the bazaar, yeah, and uh, some one of the Afghan ANA Danger Rangers, those Ford Rangers they all drive around in had struck this IED and just vaporized everybody inside. It was Ugh, a big one. And I was like, sucks. wow, shit got real, real fast. Yeah, and the bazaar's right there. It's not like it's very yeah, far away. Yeah, you, know, you could go to the back wall and you know chuck a rock and hit the center of the bazaar, um, uh, <laughs> which is what I think our gate guards used to do, <laughs> sit there and return fire with rocks at the kids who would sit there and throw rocks at them. Going uh, through the bazaar is one of the wildest experiences of my life. Like, just the yeah. uh, sounds, the smells, like the... The traffic, you know, it's just all like you just have well, to like merge yeah, into and, and the chaos. Past the, the district governor's office, which is right there, and there's like this line of people waiting to get like passport photos because they were they instituted those new IDs, hmm. and so that everybody's just sitting there in that Afghan squat all day, staring at you and smoking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're just you're just like eyeballing them, like stay the fuck away from me. And then the kids are running up and trying to steal shit out of your dump pouch, and you know you're like chocolate niche, them motherfucker, like get away from me. Yeah, they'll um, take whatever you'll give them. They'll throw rocks at the vehicles. Yeah. Like, well, so so one of our staff sergeants got really tired of that one day, and he just got out. And so the Afghans believe in communal punishment, like as a as a village, like they anybody can discipline a child. Mm-hmm. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, like, that's true. So when this one kid was being a little shit, he chucked a rock at uh, one of our guys in the turret, and this one staff sergeant from I think, I think it was like Alpha Company, like he just had enough, and he just like stomps on the brakes, hops out of the mat V, and just walks up, and with his like Oakley gloves with the enamel knuckles, just like dusts this kid. Oh jeez! Just bam, and we're all like, oh fuck and we're like we think we're gonna be in trouble and the dad is standing not 20 feet away just laughing his ass off like like that's what you get you little bastard yeah <laughs> like, oh, play stupid games that's funny <laughs> yeah they would like steal your they would try to steal like your gatorades and everything and like half the time it turned out to be like your piss bottle and it would be like oh i think we had guys that had slingshots and stuff that they would carry yeah. up there because you can't yeah. do anything you're not gonna obviously you can't shoot them you're not gonna shoot a pin yeah. flare at them but yeah. I, I was I was doing as well as fires. I was the I O guy, which they you know in typical mm-hmm. core fashion they didn't tell me I was going to do information operations until the day I landed, and they're like, oh by the way, not only are you going to blow crap up, but now you have to apologize for it on this radio station we're going to give you. I was like, oh, oh neat. Yeah. You know? So like, so I've got like you know all this like swag that I'm supposed to hand out to the Afghans. Like, we've got like T-shirts and flags and cards and lighters and candy and whatever. And so like they attached the FET with me, so yep. I had. So anytime I went on a patrol, I had these two female Marines with me. It was really funny because, like, the, the Afghan guys would, like, try to impress them. But, like, they had these crappy, like, Motorola cell phones. And they would, like, play what they thought was, like, cool music out loud and, like, <laughs> lean up against a pillar and, like, make eyes at the female Marines. What's up? Like, what's, what's up? up? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we would throw candy at the kids. So the, candies, the, the kids were always, like, kind of in my vicinity. Uh, and they would, you know, the females would, would really, like, sort of entertain the kids while I was trying to get away from them. Uh, but, yeah, the, 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 that bizarre is a wild place. And, um, Fucking dangerous place, too. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. a really dangerous place. Uh, we had a uh, motorcycle blow up there. They had a car bomb motorcycle that they parked in front of a shop that was I, yeah, I supposedly some, helping the Americans. I had some sketchy moments where, like, we knew that uh, the Taliban were driving around uh, dressed as women so that they could, you know, sort of mm, wrecky yeah. the, the gate. And I, I was walking through the bazaar one day and I, I saw the, uh, you know, on a patrol and I saw, you know, a guy that was very obviously a guy with like the shawl over his face mm-hmm. dressed as a woman on the back of one of those motorcycles. I was like, Ooh, 
What's like, up, that dude? A, that's a bad guy right there. <laughs> like, and I can't do anything about it. Like, oh, yeah. Sometimes you can tell. You're like, that dude is a bad dude. You get yeah. that look. You're like, that dude would kill me right now if he could. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, it's so pretty wild. We were there, and we ripped with 3-7. And, like, within four days, you know, Colonel Folsom, the 3-7 commander, hadn't even ripped yet. Uh, just my counterpart had. Dave Campbell uh, was the guy I ripped with. He was, you know. He was like OCS, TBS, and Fort Sill with me, same battalion at 311, and then I was ripping with him. So um, I got a very, very short turnover with him, so I'm sitting there with Colonel Folsom one day, and like we see these guys, and they're, they're dealing weapons to each other out in the east, uh, like halfway to, uh, what is it, Ka- not Kalia guys, um, Z- Zamindawar. Zamindawar? Zardrige, that was it. Um, <laughs> that, that rat trail out to the east on the way out to Kandahar. Hmm. And... Uh, so they were out there, and we, we were watching him on the P. Tid's balloon, and uh, you know he, this guy pulls out a a, a dragon off and an RPG from under a blanket, and uh, Colonel Folsom was like, "All right, you just bought yourself a bomb." And so this is my first fire mission live in country, and I call High Mars, and uh, you know two rockets out of uh, Fob Eddie, and um, this is before they moved him to a Red V. Uh, so Fob Eddie, it was like a beautiful distance for the high mars you know because they they apexed at just the right time so that like it had like a 90 degree perfect angle of fall straight down on these guys so um 90 second hang time on these rockets from when i get shot to when they're coming in and from out behind this this hill that i can't see behind comes this like shepherd and his flock of sheep Mm. and they're coming right up to where i'd put the aim point for these bombs to hit and i was like oh fuck like i'm about to murder this poor shepherd like my life is over and uh, the bombs hit, you know, just like detonates the whole tree line. And you see the, the shepherd sitting there or like standing there out in the, the middle of the dash. And there's the shrapnels kicking up little tufts of dust all around him. And it looks like Moses parted the Red Sea. You know, just like it just misses him perfectly on either side. And his entire flock of sheep behind him, poof, dead. Oh, so fuck. He's, he's just standing there all alone now. And he just looks around and then he just takes off running in some random direction. And I'm like, oh my god! And I'm just like, my my asshole is puckered into my you know esophagus at this point, you know. And uh, so yeah, we got 11 Taliban with that and 17 sheep. So he shows up to the to the uh, to the gate the next day, and like we port, we pay him like a couple thousand dollars for all these sheep. And then uh, after that, every farmer and their brother was like capping their own sheep, and then coming to the gate thinking they're going to get a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up getting all these like nicknames. I was like. It was like they called it the Mutton Massacre uh, after that. And then I, I got so I got like Hannibal, Silence of the Lambs, Bo Peep, uh, you know, a couple of those nicknames. And then when I left the battalion, they gave me this 45, a Kimber 1911. And on the side of it, it says, uh, you know, Captain Walker, USMC, me 20, sheep zero. <laughs> nice. Nice. The so. sheep, uh, we had a we had a pretty funny story. Uh, we were tracking this HVT uh, high value target. And, uh, you know how it goes. You sit there and watch these dudes forever. Like uh, yeah, trying like to six, verify six it's the dude sitting there just watching everything he does. Yeah. And if you lose sight, you know, the whole process starts over like for a second, you yep. know? So we're watching this guy forever. And then we're finally like, all right, we're getting ready to strike this dude. Like it's go time. And then, um, same deal. We call in, I think I can't, it might've been high more. I don't remember what it was that we, we dropped on him, but, um, and same deal as a flock of sheep and this dude kept walking up as the ordinance is like on its way. And we're like, oh, fuck. 
and the PGSS operator, which is like the big blimp on the base with the camera on it um, that can see pretty far, and we'll use that for yeah, spotting. It's like, and stuff it's like, like that. the Eye of Sauron if you ever watched the Lord of the Ring movies. Like it can <laughs> yeah. it can see anything and everything. Exactly, and you have these civilian contractors that run it. You know, and they have a radio that they talk to you with, you know, because they're normally separate or whatever. Anyway, um, so this dude is like, oh, he's like real country. He's like, these sheep. He's like, they're sheep walking up to the target. And we're like, there's nothing we can do now. It's already on its way. And then boom, and it doesn't kill the sheep. Like every, the sheep in the herd are just like, stop. Like, oh, fuck. This dude, like right in front of us just got blown up. And then the dude, uh, the uh, PGS, PGSS operator is like, Looks like good hits. Uh, oh, no. It looks like the sheep are eating the bodies. Like, oh. And he starts like, oh, oh no. Why? And we're just like, oh, my God. You dude. see some truly horrendous shit with that PGSS balloon. Like, I remember one, one morning, like, you know, like, walking to the COC, and you're like, there's everybody crowded around the, the – I, I popped in at, like, late at night, you know, like, after my shift was, was over. I usually slept at night my – my staff sergeant had the night shift, but like I popped in for some reason, everybody's crowded around the TV kind of like, Oh my God. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? And they're like, they're watching this kid like five kilometers away. And he's, he's just going to town on his dog. Uh, and then he uh, like reaches around and starts giving the dog a little handy. And we're like, Oh my God. And you just see just like the, the most, cause you can see everything with that thermal camera. We, uh, it's so I, bad. When I was down in Marja, my first Afghan pump, uh, we had a joint COC towards the end. We brought in, because this was like, you know, they were trying to to integrate the Afghans more. and like, hey, man, this is your fight, so you're going to work in the COC with us, mm-hmm. which kind of worked. They didn't really work with us. We built like a little wall because we still had zipper machines, like the secret computers and stuff sure, like that. Yeah. So anyway, we were, same thing. It was like nighttime. We're sitting there watching you know, doing what you do. You sit there and just watch the cameras and these two dudes. Oh my God. Uh, one dude was holding this donkey's head while another dude was smashing it from behind. Right. And I'm like, we're like, no, no. And he stops, right? The dude finishes, stops, goes around. And then they trade. The other dude goes and goes to hit it. But before he does, he stops. The donkey lifts its tail, takes a massive shit, and then the dude goes in and starts no. pounding. And oh, we look at, we're like talking to the Afghan guys. We're like, what the fuck? And they're like, not us. They're like, those are Marja dudes. Marja dudes. <laughs> we're just like, what the fuck, It was, it was always funny how the guys from dist- different districts would like call each other like, oh, oh, the people in this district are like hillbillies or whatever. Well, I mean, Hellman Province is just so country. That's It's like going to Iowa. You're not saying that people in Iowa fuck animals or anything, but it's like farmland, you know? It's like a caricature of deliverance country country you know it's just it's yeah anything and everything happens in this place but like getting away from doing horrible things to animals <laughs> there was uh, a lot of good people out there i hate for pe- that to be the impression that people have of afghans cause yeah working- you know the, the, the afghans that like the, the district governor that i had he was like god bless him like he he had taken a serious stand you know and he's in the middle of taliban heartland mm-hmm. you know and for him to basically and, and i don't think he no, he did. He slept inside the walls of the FOB, but his office was right outside. And uh, for him to even do that was a, was a huge risk. Cause we had we started a, a district community council, you know, and um, somebody joined. And uh, some Ishakzai guy, you know, 
one of the tribes um, mm-hmm. insur- in, insulted a Nurzai guy, and then uh, you know next day the the Ashaksai guy's head was on our doorstep with his balls in his mouth. You know, like, oh fuck, yeah, it was straight up gangland shit, uh, some cartel stuff. But you know, that's the kind of consequences you're dealing with. And for this district governor and a lot of these guys, you know, a lot of the A and A guys were actually really great. Um, you know there was a sergeant who was this total rock star and he got killed about halfway through our deployment and like the mourning that happened even among our marines was uh, it was kind of kind of touching you're like wow you know this guy was actually he gave a shit and that was that was the heartbreaker for me um, working with the district governance as well because I had to do a lot of key leader engagements and stuff Um, you know working the information operations side of it you know like I'm blowing crap up in the afternoon and then I'd have to have meetings with the governor like every every evening uh, and talk messaging and community outreach and all that stuff. And, you you know, some of these guys were just, like, they were really engaged. And a lot of them, you realize, that they just didn't care. All they wanted was money from the rich Americans. And you realize that it was very heartbreaking because, you know, if you think back to the Afghan history and, you know, since the Soviet invasion and when the country was essentially destroyed and then the, the resources were fairly plundered and then uh, you know it was a warlord society after that and then mm-hmm. you know, post 9-11 it's been a war since the last 17 years like the idea of a bunch of country bumpkins down in Helmand having somebody up in Kandahar who's not even the same tribe as them tell them that they need to listen to whatever and be proud of being an Afghan in general it's like that is you might as well tell me that like somebody on the moon says that because we're all from the same galaxy we should yeah. band together it's like it's like, what the hell are you talking about? A majority like, of those people have zero idea of like, geo, you know, of uh, regional or international politics. Yeah, like they're they like, whatever, is, man. They, this is my valley where we want to farm. Yeah, we want to feed our family, not get our heads chopped off by an angry other tribe, and then you know do what's right by our tribe. So family tribe first, and then you know the idea of a nation to them is very like, it's it's very nebulous. It's an ethereal concept that just doesn't register. So that was when I was like, I started losing sort of hope and uh, it kind of broke my heart to be there anymore. I was just like, you know, I'm busting my ass to try to build a, a lasting uh, messaging program here that's not going to survive as soon as I leave. I knew it was all sort of futile and uh, I knew that they didn't care. Uh, and I was just like, wow, uh, that was that was very disheartening towards the end of the deployment. But then, uh, you know, we... It, it the thing about Afghanistan, do... the thing about Afghanistan is, is that nobody has given a clear and concise like mission. Like, what's the end state? It's hard to say we lost or won a war when you don't even tell us what losing or winning looks like. You right. know, it's like we're just there, trying to make it better. Like the people that are there, like when you were there, when I was there, when other guys are there, like everyone's there trying to make it better. Some dudes are just assholes and just want to go, you know, yeah, the and they, they and kept fight. pushing when we were going through EMV and the workup. It was like, hey, you need to be doing counterinsurgency, not looking for a gunfight. But then we get there and Sangin's so damn violent that all you end up is is gunfights. And so trying to do counterinsurgency is actually really fucking hard because security is such a problem. Well, plus counterinsurgency can't last when you're doing seven-month deployments because every fucking unit's going to do it differently. They just knew that they needed to wait you out, and it didn't matter to them. Exactly. So, so And then the other piece of that is that once you keep restricting the ROEs for the the grunt on the ground who doesn't care about political decisions, he's like, if you're not going to let me shoot back, and you're still making me patrol, 
basically all you're doing is just baiting me with my life out here. Yeah. And and I that made me really mad as well, being the guy who was supposed to be covering them with artillery. And I was like, you know, I basically couldn't drop a bomb for them until somebody was hurt. Exactly. Yeah, and, that's and, true. And that, made, that made me really, really frustrated for those guys, and I felt like I was failing them somehow. And then, like... But but to his credit, like I, I do have some leadership issues with our battalion commander at the time. However, he was so damn aggressive, and the the S three and the XO were on board with this as well. That as soon as it looked like anybody was going to get hurt, he was like, "Damn the rules!" All he's like, "I'm the battalion commander. I will eat these consequences." He he gave the guys top cover in a way that he wasn't supposed to be doing, and so I was dropping bombs on shit preemptively that were like, they I, I guarantee you they were valid targets. However, they, it was like. He could have gotten in trouble if you'd really needled down into the, the technicalities of this shit. But he, I think, I think that saved a lot of guys because I was drop. I mean, there were points where I was dropping as close as a hundred meters from friendlies. Oh, jeez. Yeah, like I was like, get in your MRAP. I'm about to blow the roof off here, and uh, yeah, we did. And during during a really bad fight down in Kalia, guys. I mean, we had to roll tanks in at one point, and they were just like, they were main gun rounding houses and. You know all kinds of stuff. It was it was it was really rough down there. That's where we had uh, a couple guys from two eight and a few guys from one seven were, were KIA and uh, that Chris Lewis and uh, one of my corporals Magliolo. You know they they really earned their keep during that fight. Like Lewis was Winchestering High Mars batteries into bad guy country, and at one point one of my JFOs Magliolo was like calling in a medevac, controlling ECAS, and helping Lewis drop high Mars while carrying a casualty on his back. You know, and this is a corporal. I, I tried to write him up for the bronze star and they were, I was told like, no, you need to write him up for a NAM. And I was like, what? It was that political bullshit about rank. You know, dude, the, we make fun of the army for how many awards they give their guys, but some dudes would, you know, sometimes it's like there. I, so back to like what I've said before, you know, this podcast was definitely a platform that I, I put out here for people to tell stories like that, that because everyone knows everyone that's been to like Afghanistan or, you know, in actual combat and stuff knows there are guys that did things in combat that should should have been recognized that just never were. Or it was yeah. like, OK, hey, man, thanks for coming. Here's like a, you know, here's a whatever, something basic. Well, yeah. And what they did is they took they took Magliolo's accomplishments and rolled them up into the, the platoon commander's award. Yeah, you know, and it was like, granted, he was there too, and like, I don't want to take away from this guy. He may, he may have very well, very much deserved it, but, but it became kind of a zero sum game where like we can't recognize Magliolo for this action because it takes away from the lieutenant's achievements, which is like, hey man, like th- we can recognize them both. <laughs> like, yeah, what doesn't the have issue? to be yeah. a yeah? We're not taking water out of one guy's cup to fill the other. Like, we got if two people here. did heroic things and two people did heroic <laughs> exactly. things, it's like it's yeah. not that hard of a thing, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it is what it is, man. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do. I mean, I, everybody bitches about the the award system and stuff like that. Sometimes we say we have too many awards. On one hand, you want you want stuff to be legitimate, like you want someone to be awarded something that they actually earned. And and dude, I remember sitting, I remember sitting in a Purple Heart ceremony, and the dudes in the um, audience. This is at the base theater, I think at. Um, mm-hmm camp lejeune and one of the dudes is like oh look so-and-so's up there like he didn't even get you know he wasn't even blown up that much but like people are talking shit about him like get their purple heart and shit i'm like what the fuck man so it's like you want that's one thing that has always driven me crazy about the the militaries in general is that we we feel i I think a lot of us all joined because we wanted to feel big and bad and i think that a lot of us uh sort of 
uh, manifest that by trying to tear everybody else down. You know, yeah. it's just like, you know, oh, some you, you, I mean, you can always say somebody had it harder than you. Yes. But that doesn't take away from what you did. Hey, look, that guy's a poke. Great. He still signed the same fucking contract you did. Like, Give, give him some credit. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Everybody, there's someone that's always done more than you, and there's someone that's always done less than you. You know, and that's yeah, a sure. fact. That's a fact. And guys, guys get all like big headed about their service, and it's like, dude, hey man, it's cool. You should be proud of your service and stuff like that. But to down somebody else, like, I yeah, mean, I, I really, don't know. I really hate all that. Maybe you hear, I'm sensitive to it because I've been called a pogue once or twice as an artilleryman. Uh, so. yeah, you get over that. Usually, it's yeah. the guys that don't know anything doing that, or they're just fucking around with you. Um, but like what I was going to say was, uh, you know, dudes talk about wanting to do something for like veteran suicide and shit like that. But then you have guys talk about their service online and all the dudes like you didn't do shit. Okie's not a deployment. Yeah. not a deployment. And it, you know, I'm, I'm on that boat. I, I can, jo- I'll joke around like that. Like, Oh, Kuwait must've been rough. You know, um, if you're talking to like somebody who's very, very close and they know you're kidding, but that somebody can internalize that shit, man. Some like, do some dude some dudes take it too far. It's just like everything yeah. else. Like you can you can harass a dude a little bit, but when you start like when you start making it like super personal or you just t- go over yeah. the lines, oh, it's yeah. like, dude, you know, you're you're kinda of being a dickhead, you know. But Yeah, I, I really disagree with that. I, I, I try to talk to my Marines about that, um, even even today. Um just like, hey, look, hey, just shut your mouth, do your job. And uh, be proud of what you've done, and you can talk about it with people who know. But like, don't don't ever take away from anybody else. You, like, how would you feel if somebody took away from you? You know. So yeah, it's but, uh, good stuff. But back to what you were talking about with the ROEs and stuff like that. Three six wasn't bad. My the battalion commander who w- only was there for a few of the strikes. Well, you really. guys were there in like a real rough time in Marsha, right? Um. No. Well, I was there on their second pump. Their first time was when they actually did the clear, and then right. I came back. I came out for the second time around, which was like a, the next year. Yeah. Um. But the battalion commander was all about like, hey, if they're doing something bad, fucking strike them. Like, here's the thing. But he was also very. He gave really good guidance. Like, we're not just going to go randomly blow up houses or anything like crazy. Like, because we it's suspected whatever. Yeah. Like. If we see something wrong, then we're going to take care of it, and that was that, cool. that was that was something that happened with us too. And uh, you know, I, I I will admit that I got a little trigger happy probably towards the middle. And th- thankfully, I had a pretty level headed um, opso and exo who would be on the floor and be like, "Wait, wait, wait!" Like, yeah, confirm. Like, I, <laughs> easy killer. Like, I, you know, it's it's easy to go bloodthirsty. And I and I, I I had a tally of kills on the board at one point, and uh, my opso walked in and he saw it and he like erased it and he was like, "Don't do that." And I was like. And I, at first, I just thought he was being like an, an asshole, and then I like, you know, years later, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't spare a thought for it again until much later, and then I rem- and then I remembered that, and I realized I was like, he was trying to make me take this seriously and not seem like a scoreboard, which is the right approach. And I was like, you know, wow, okay, it's not a game; it's a professional. If you, start, if, you know, it's a yeah, professional. If you start treating it that way, thing. then you're going to start looking for things, and then it's confirmation bias at that point. You're going to get sucked into a target and then you're just going to blow shit up that doesn't need to get blown up. Well, so. as as easy it was as easy as it was to work with 36, which was still restrictive at the time. It wasn't like it was I don't want people to think that we were just letting loose hellfires, you know, all through the Marja area. It's still a pretty restrictive process and I think I went into detail about it a couple podcasts ago of the actual like targeting process. So I'm not going to yeah. go through it again, but um what I had with three six was completely different than what I had as an advisor team because our as an advisor team, you know, we don't own the battle space. We were in three fours battle space, yeah. and three fours battalion commander 
was not having it. Like I remember being pinned down, like literally pinned down. I got a Harrier on station. He sees the target, you know, I'm being, and it's just me being pinned down. Cause I'm on a rooftop and, you know, I was yeah. on the rooftop watching an area as the, uh, as we were having a KLE, it was actually the last mission we did, you know, in Afghanistan and, uh, denied the mission because the guy was standing next to a mud wall. Like it wasn't even a compound. It was a wall. And I'm like, I'm literally laying so he's on taking my, that whole, uh, civilian structures thing really seriously. Yeah. And I'm laying, literally laying flat on my back, you know, trying to be as small as I can behind one sandbag and <laughs> one sandbag high and rounds are just flying over my face. And I have the, uh, uh, what was the ISR piece? The eye piece, the actual one that you could hold it yeah. up to your eyeball. The little one. Well, they're calling it. They're calling it the SIR now. The 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 one soldier ISR is what we called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. SIR. The so I had I had that one, and I was like, I had you know, I was talking to the Harry. I had the radio in one hand. I had that in one hand, and just <laughs> rounds are flying over. And I had Fosberg on the other day. He was there, and uh, him and my major like I remember my major like peeked his eyeballs just over the edge of the roof, and he's like, Kramer, are you okay? And I'm like, ah, like I'm just. Can we get some fire on this guy or like, what's up? You know, they thought I was going to get fucking schwacked up there. And I did too. I was fucking scared. But to be in a moment like that and the, and you hear that your, you know, request to, for fire gets denied, man. Yeah. I've and, thrown a trash can or two across the COC before. Man, that's happened a couple times. That happened a couple times when I was out there. And I just, I was like, fuck three, four, fuck them. I hate them. <laughs> I hate the battalion commander. Like that was just, to me, that was bullshit, but yeah, it is yeah. what it is. So as an IO guy, I, I got lucky when I was with three, six back to three, six, my, my already officer got pulled to go do IO and yeah. which was cool because that's all he did. He got pulled and he's like, Hey, look, this is going to be kind yeah, of a they- full-time job. So I need you to take over the fire section and do it by yourself. Oh, that's neat. That's, and, that's good for you. And as a, so as a Sergeant, I was over there like, you know, doing all the fire stuff. And I actually, I somehow talked the, uh, regimental, um, the regimental FSCC into giving us approval for high Mars at the battalion level. That's, so see, we, we, we showed up with that. So, which, which was great, but that's, oh, really? pretty, that's pretty awesome for you to have swindled that as a Sergeant. Yeah. And we actually got Good a strike out of it too. So it was like the first strike like that. And we were like, fuck yeah, this is sick. But, um, how was it working with IO and doing the messaging? It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Being and like, it's kind of a well, weird, it's kind of a I, weird I thing. You have, I mean, I came up with my own, I, so I had my own interpreter. Um, yeah. Who was a, just an awkward guy, but. Um, you Did know. you guys use the radio in a box and stuff? Yeah, we had the whole, it was a whole little radio station down in the basement of our. Uh, oh, CFC yeah, yeah. Group. I remember that at Jackson. Yeah. 
Because we had, yeah, so uh, it used to be in one of, like, the bunkers, but then I moved it into that basement. Um, it was the, still there the next year. Yeah, the district stability teams were not happy about that. The USAID they used yeah. to use that as their KLE room, but then the battalion commander was like, fuck them, this is my building. And I was like, they can take KLEs in their office. I was like, okay. So, I, yeah, I put it in there, and, um, uh, you know, I had that playlist that I had to sort of curate, and it's all, you know, the greatest hits of the Hindu Kush, I guess. You know, Radio yeah. Sangin 100 FM. And uh, I would get on every now and then and, like, slip in an Ace of Bass song or something like that, you know, just to, to be an asshole. And, like, <laughs> Bring <laughs> a little culture funny. to the area. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. But uh, uh, the one like the one time I slipped a Britney Spears song into the, the playlist just to be funny, the, the Opso actually turned on the radio to, to show somebody oh. what we were doing. And I got so much trouble. Yeah, oh, man. Did you have but, the little uh, burner phone and, and, and like the number yeah, they could we call the, into? Yeah, we had the burner phone, and then we had um, we had messaging boxes, and so like half the patrols I did were out to like check on, you know, uh, the civil affairs projects, you know, the, the high school that was being built, and there were, there were these like ammo cans where they could do suggestion boxes for like, you know, questions that we could ask the district governor, um, and so I'd like go out with a set of keys and like open those up and take all these suggestions home and have my interpreter go through them and. You know, it was like it's basically like a community message board almost. Um, mm-hmm. But we just sort of made that up. Like they were supposed to do a call-in show. Um, we had done that before, but like half the time it was just like people would just prank call you. So um, <laughs> they were just like say "fuck America" and then hang up or uh, something like that. And it did. It ended up not being worth it. Um, and then I had regiment sort of breathing down my neck to uh, to push things that they were trying to push but like i said i hadn't done any of the training and so like they were like asking for like all these lines of effort uh, um assessments and all these reports that i didn't know how to write and i didn't care to and my my ceo was like fuck them he's like this is rao they don't know what's going on in here he's like you you pitch a plan to me and we will run with it and so it was basically me and the battalion commander just making shit up as we went along which which ended up turning out where he was really happy with it so i mean i don't know whether i think regiment just kind of like wrote us off after a while it was just like one seven's gonna do what they're gonna do but yeah uh yeah io was just like to me to, to me it was a lot of community outreach and then we the fed they were actually like they were they were shockingly useful as an intelligence gathering tool so what ended up happening with io is i ended up getting switched into this intel cell that we created it was me and the rs2 and a couple of the enablers and you know like some of the british guys that were there and you know we just brought in all these random heads and it was just like look all of you talk to people out there and we can map the sort of human terrain this way so the the het the the fet women were a great tool because they were the they were the great divide of 50 percent of that population i mean 50 mm-hmm. percent of the population is female and we're not supposed to speak to them and they hear everything yeah they're treated like furniture but now they have it's so weird yeah, somebody who wants to listen to them. And so they would just drop dimes on everybody. And so it was great. You know, you'd, be like, you'd sit there with them and they would just like, all these women would just basically gossip to our FET Marines about whose husband was Taliban, who <laughs> was responsible for this. You know, just like, so you start building this map uh, of who is who coming from the women in town through the FET. And so like, Everybody was like, you know, joking around. It was like, oh, we shouldn't have women out here. And I was like, fuck you, dude. These are the best intel source we've got out here. Like, they, they are they are gold. I wish I had four more. I never, I, yeah, I never actually worked with them. Yeah. So I never really had like a, I'd see them every once in a while. They'd come into the fob or whatever. 
And then, but I never actually like went we out on a great, patrol a or did anything with them. Those those women did a fantastic job. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I was I was really happy to pull all that stuff and you know we and they were it was very useful to the S two. So yeah, I mean, so we did that, and then we had the S two or, or the the S two guys and the, the the PGSS guys would come in, and we would you know establish areas of interest for them to scan when we didn't have anything else to do, and then occasionally some you know three letter agency guys would show up and tell us some spooky thing that they were doing and you know yes. they are or they would just randomly show up with like some tier one guys and then just like kill somebody and then we'd just be like okay we're pick clean up our mess bye and then just like fly away be like fuck we promised somebody we wouldn't shoot up this neighborhood and they just did it you know so, it's like such is life sometimes that sucks so, man uh but yeah so then i mean we, we wrapped up we were we um you know we we fought it out pretty good uh for seven months and then Came back, uh, two seven ripped out with us, and then I, uh, I pretty much immediately left for first Anglico. I, I was supposed, I, so I got an invitation to Marsoc to to go to ANS, and then my battalion commander wouldn't sign the papers. He was just being, he was being a jerk. He was just like, I don't want to lose you as an artillery officer. I was like, dude, I'm up to PA, PCS anyway. Yeah. And he just was like, he just he took my Marsoc papers and he put them in his desk and he locked the drawer and he's like i'll talk to you about this after i get back from emv i was like when is that he goes 30 days and i was like sir i will have left and ans will have already classed up i was like this is the only time i can do this so i didn't get to do it and so i never got to try how would how um, would have the how would the process work for an officer for an already officer because i didn't think it's kind of a harder process for you guys than it is for like the well, infantry it, officers it, right it's only harder because uh well, no, not it's not harder than infantry officers necessarily. It's it's hard for officers, period, because it, it can be any combat arms MOS, and you get completely retrained. You you basically go through IOC, and then you get the critical skills operator stuff on top of it. Um, so for me, or for for officers, you have to be a, a first lieutenant for at least a year, and a captain for no more than a year. That's your window, which is exactly a two year window. Hmm. And my deployment was smack dab in the middle of that. This was my second attempt to go to Marsoc. The first attempt, um, the ANS classed up like right when I was leaving for Afghanistan. And then the second one was classing up like right as I was getting back. And so because he wouldn't sign my papers, I missed both. Um, and then, and that's all the window you get. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm sure they will waiver some people if you're like a, a known stud, but like I was just like some random artillery officer. And, and one of those things that, happens with artillery officers a lot because we're always with the infantry our our fitness reports are written by infantry officers and so they're not going to fuck over in their lineal standing of all their the rankings of the officers in their company they're not going to rate you above their guys because you're an attachment so you always get the lowest fitness report in the oh company, really company regardless of how well you do hmm. it's just a known thing so when you go before the promotion board usually if you've been attached with the infantry they'll just discard your infantry fit reps because they're just like look we know that these going to be trash you know, that's may, that's a wild that's weird yeah i mean it makes i mean it doesn't make sense but i understand i get it you you understand why they're looking out for yeah. people but yeah it, but it, it well can. they look out for their own guys for sure yeah so i missed out on marsoc uh but then it kind of worked out great because i got first anglico and so we, we landed and uh, nobody from 311 came to receive us uh the night we arrived um and the marine corps order said that you're supposed to stay with stay with your deploying unit for 90 days uh, and that was due to yeah. three five having that really hard deployment and uh you know you need to convalesce with your guys and have that sort of emotional support system 
well, 311 being right next door, they were like, uh, yeah, you're not staying with them for 90 days. Uh, you're coming back tomorrow, the day after we got back from Afghanistan. We're supposed to be on our 96, and the battalion commander called us into his office. So we came off what's supposed to be our time alone with our families. Yeah. We would landed about eight hours prior. So we landed at midnight, and he called us into his office at 8 a.m. So I had to like wake up and go right back into the office. I've had people, I've had units do that. We're like, I'll see you guys yeah. tomorrow. And I'm like, what? Yeah, so he called us in. He was like, "All right, uh, I, I report in." I was like, "I was like Captain Walker and one seven Fire Support Coordination Center uh, reporting is ordered." And he he goes, first of all, you're the three eleven Fire Support Coordination Center." He's like, "One seven doesn't exist anymore. Uh, you're coming back to us immediately." Uh, by the way, the Marine Corps ball is this weekend, so you need to get tickets. And if you're not coming, you're going to be on duty this weekend. Like okay. Oh. And then, and then he goes. Uh, I know that you think you're special because you just came back from combat, but you're not the first that. Marines to go to go to combat, and you're not going to be the last. So uh, it's time for, now that you're home. It's time for you to actually go back to work. Oh, and I fucking hate he, it when people are like, "I don't want you. You're not special. Don't think you're special." It's like, dude, yeah. I don't think I'm special, but I do. I think, don't think I'm special, I but I was getting shot off. at like ten days ago. Like, <laughs> uh, and so he was like, "You're you're also uh, going to the field for two weeks for Steel Night." And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You want me to go tell my corporals who have been in combat not even a fortnight ago that they get, they're they going to go sit in the field in 29 Palms for two weeks? I was like, yes. And yes, so I do I, expect you to say that. <laughs> well, so what I did is I, I the, the, the the regimental commander had uh, just gone forward. So Colonel Redforth uh, was, you know, ripped out with us when we were leaving. So it was RC, I was under RCT-6. So RCT-7 RCT was taking over, so Colonel Renforth wasn't there. So I couldn't request mass to the regimental CO. But the senior battalion commander on deck was my battalion commander. So he was the acting regimental CO hmm. back on 29 Palms, which made him, because 7th Marines is the most senior, it's like the parent unit on 29 Palms, that made him like the, basically the most powerful man on the base. So I walked, I walked straight back next door and walked straight into his office like, Sir... 311 says this, 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 and this. And he goes, yeah, you're not doing any of that. <laughs> I was like, yes. So he like gave us the top cover. And then uh, I got called by the the major in the FSCC. Uh, and he, he brings me at six and center in front of his desk. And he just like fucking lifes me out for this. He's like, who the fuck do you think you are? Where do your loyalties lie? I was like, to my Marines in 1-7. Like the yeah, guys we were think? just there with. Like, fuck you. Uh, yeah. And, That's, uh, yeah, man. Some people are just dicks like that. It was such a joke. I was like, why Why on earth would I think this is any of this is a good idea? You want to send a brand new second lieutenant who's never been trained on theater-specific fires to do three fours mission readiness exercise when I just came from where they're going, and you're not going to let me go out and do their MRX. You're going to send me to Steel Knight instead. Uh, yeah. I mean, I understand them like wanting to get the most up-to-date information to help train the guys that are getting ready to go down seas. But again, like you can't just tell a dude like, "Hey, welcome back." Oh, by the way, like I mean, you, they can obviously, but it's it's such a dick yeah. move, and it fucks up morale so well, much. And technically, it was against Marine Corps order, so I had that like in my pocket. So like, yeah, that's true. Luckily, luckily, we we got to stay with one seven for about thirty days, and then I PCS down to First Anglico. And when I arrived, uh, they were still. When was this? What year? So this was twenty thirteen. Now January. Okay. Um, and uh, so I PCS down to Pendleton. And, uh, you know, I got there and Delta was still, I think they were just coming off deployment or they weren't back yet or something like that. And, um, 
so I got, you know, I, I, I listened to your your podcast with Damaro, and he already covered all this stuff with the Japanese. So I got I got attached out for for Don Blitz with them, and I had Damaro and and Fernandez and um, uh, and Sanchez. And you know we did that whole bonsai charge on San Clemente, which I yeah. you, know, you guys already talked about, so I won't go over. It was like, uh, but <laughs> one one story from that that was pretty worth mentioning is that I remember Demaro was just like he. You remember how like intense he is and like how of course uh, that that sort of hateful gaze he can get. He's still like that too. I you know what? Good. <laughs> I hope he never changes, man. That guy, <laughs> that guy, that guy is intense and he gets results, but. Uh, we were we were sitting on this Japanese carrier, and he's he you know, him being the RO with, I think he still had his saw at the time. You know, he weighs like about a million pounds, and we're sitting there waiting to, to board this Japanese Chinook, and he's just I was like I walk over I was like I was like D you okay man he's like he's like this fucking sucks sir and I was like yeah I know and I just looked at him and I was like just remember that no matter what happens today, someone somewhere is gonna go have something removed from their asshole at the hospital. Today. <laughs> <laughs> like, and so you started laughing and I was like, all right, let's, let's do this thing. And so we start doing that bonsai charge and like halfway down this, the, like the food on the, the Japanese carrier was so bad that it was like all these like fish heads and rice kind of shit. Um, and uh, we, there were, there were like scrambled eggs that had like little shrimp in them. Was, and everything was like fish and soup and yeah. lots of white rice and it was like it, it was very I, I don't eat a lot of that stuff so it was it, we'll say I had gastrointestinal distress I've, had, I've heard a lot of dudes come off the Japanese ship and are like dude I lost a ton of weight because there was nothing yeah. I could eat there like yeah so I was nothing like, I wanted I like, to eat yeah and they, and they, they were like bless them they, they wanted to have like hospitality so they were like asking me to come to the wardroom Mm. And I was like trying to sneak MREs in between meals because that was the only thing I could eat. Super, could they're super nice people. I had a they're, oh, they're, they're so great, but like uh, it was just like yeah, I, I couldn't stomach it, and I was sitting there just like sweating in this staff meeting, and they're speaking only in Japanese, and I didn't have an interpreter. They're oh. like Angloco needs to send a, a guy out to the Japanese. I was like, do I get an interpreter? They're like, no. I was like, okay, great. That's a that's a good use of my time. So yeah. we, we came off the ship and we do that bonsai charge. And so like, it's like really hot on the island and we started running out of water very quickly. And we found out that the Japanese didn't have a, a resupply plan and they're all just running in very lightweight sort of web gear kind of stuff. And there's a truck just driving behind them with all their packs and we're carrying, you know, our main rucks and we're wearing sappy plates and carrying ammo and extra batteries for three days. Cause we had no resupply plan with them because you know, they, they didn't have the same, uh, gear in terms of radios to resupply batteries and all that but yeah so you know we weigh about a million pounds while we're doing this stuff and uh we get to the end almost down near shoba the impact area on the south side we've been at it for about seven miles and probably eight hours and all of a sudden my stomach is just like oh my god it's coming it's gonna happen and like there, there's a, there's this like navy bunker somewhere on the south end of that island you probably know the one i'm talking about oh the, on san clemente the yeah uh, on san clemente or the castle yeah what well, well, not not the castle. That's like the that's where, like where the we would stay when we were doing impact stuff. But it's like some na- it's like a ban- uh, a manned navy bunker. I don't know what they do there. I think it's a secret facility. Oh, th- so they monitor all the radar systems that are on the island. Okay. I know I know what you're talking about. So I, ca- I I see that like on the horizon, and I'm like I'm gonna make it to this thing and see if they have a toilet. So you know I've got cami paint on my face. I've got my weapon. I'm, I'm like pouring sweat. I've got all this shit. And I come banging on this door and this very confused Navy lieutenant opens the door and there's this huge Marine and covered in cami paint. 
And I just look at him in the eye and I'm, I'm carrying my weapon and I'm like, hey man, you got a toilet? And he's like, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, get the fuck out of my way. I like face palm him out of the way and I just run in and I just absolutely annihilate his bathroom. And he's like, you can't come in here. This is a secret facility. I'm like, I'm going to shit on your floor if you don't get out of my way. Like, uh, like this is I, happening, man. <laughs> this is happening. Let me know how you want it to go down because it's happening either way. <laughs> so... Yeah, that was that was that whole thing with the Japanese, and they were just like straight up bonsai charging around. And, and so we've uh, I've done a, I've I've talked a lot about the different stuff we've done at Anglico um, okay. on different shows and stuff like that. I mean, you, you were a hearse master, so you know we got to do a lot of spy stuff. We had yep. you. Who else was a, we had you? Cson was a hearse master. Do we have anybody uh, else on the team? Not on the team in the in the company. We would use Gariza and Brenke. So we got we got to yeah. I think Brenke was. Yeah. Uh, we got to take advantage of the uh, the Marsoc Tower next door and and do a, a bunch of, of fun, yeah. do a bunch of slides over there and then obviously our our relationships with the air wing because we have so many pilots at Anglico was yeah. great because then we got to go and do it live you know well, fast especially roping living and spy. with them on the ships you know you can just walk down to the ready room and I don't you know I realized uh, after that deployment that as a JTAC I don't think that entire deployment I ever actually formally submitted a J Tower or an ASR. No, you know, I I would just walk down to the the ready room and just have a face to face and just be like, hey man, can you do this? And they'd be like, yep. And I'll be like, all right, I'll send you an email. And that was it. I think Anglico, if anything, it taught me that there's a lot of stuff that you can do in the Marine Corps that you just don't realize. Like you just got to ask. Like yeah. people are people are really willing to come out and do some cool stuff because it one it helps them. You know, when you're when I'm talking specifically aircraft. Well, that, that, that's how our when we got dirt deaded. Uh, when Fix 7 got sent down to Djibouti, that's how we ended up having such a good time. Like, so the the lucky thing for us is like one recon really looked out for us. You know, that's so before um, before you get into this story, real quick, I want you to come back, pull back a little bit, and talk about okay. because you had you and your team had a, a different experience with your workup because you did a lot of work with the MRF, right. so the the Maritime Raid Force, so, and so, uh, and I'll preface that real quick with. The unfortunate thing that happens a lot of times with the firepower control teams and stuff like that is unless you're being utilized like you traditionally would, like the guys that went to Afghanistan and were doing the Georgian liaison team missions and stuff like that, like when you're getting attached to like recon to help them out, they don't want your entire little firepower control team. They want the JTAC, basically the JTAC, and that's it. Um, And so So, it's kind of a crappy situation for them, but I would like to hear what kind of what the workup was like for you that was you know attached to them for mo- almost all of their events. Right. So um, it it all started because they being at the Mew headquarters technically as Recon and Anglico are at the the headquarters. S three. Yeah. Yeah. So they were like, hey, we need an action officer for every event that we're going to do. So every. Uh, everybody had to basically jump on a grenade and, and plan somebody else's training at some point. And so I ended up being the action officer for uh, recon's uh, ground training. And uh, at the same time, they were asking for a JTAC from us. And Watt remembered that I had all that experience with the, the boat company. So he's like, you, you are good with amphib stuff. And he's like, he's like, and you have a lot of combat experience from Afghanistan. <clears throat> he's like, would you like to go over to uh, recon? And I joined specifically to go to recon. I joined the Marine. I chose the Marine Corps because I wanted to be a recon Marine. Um, and so I jumped at the opportunity and I was just like, yeah, you better not give this to somebody else. Like I, I will take it. And uh, so they have so many JTACs, but I don't want to say that they're, they're bad JTACs cause they're not, they have some very fine JTACs. Like uh, for uh, the most part, they're not that good and it's not their fault. 
I, mean, I wait, they, and they let can, me let me can, let me preface yeah, that you, you with get, you get some really great guys like like Matt uh, and and stuff, but like yeah, they, they're just too overburdened. Yes, exactly, they and have, that's what have, I wanted to say. They have sniper quals, they have hearse quals, they have assault breacher quals, and it, you know, yep. Jay Tackery ends up taking a, a very back seat half the time. So they would come out with us, and it became a mutually beneficial relationship because they would give us. They had all this clout. One, like the interesting thing between Anglico and Recon is that we're, we're both uh, MEF headquarters group assets. We're both technically conventional units, but because of their reputation from uh, as a direct action unit from Vietnam and, and subsequent conflicts, they they enjoy a certain amount of mystique that gives them some free passes in a lot of things, i.e., like ships tax. Yeah, like they did. They provided no ships tax, even though they were one of the bigger uh, units on the San Diego, uh, and they try to take hat like. They're like, hey, we want three guys from Anglico to be in the trash compactor. I was like, you understand that there's only four of us, right? There's yeah. like four enlisted guys. It's like you just wiped out eighty percent of my team. Yeah. Um. So they weren't. So I got pulled over to them uh, during the workup. I uh, would go with them to their ground interrupt, their uh, all the SOTG training that uh, Major Opalski over there would come up with, and he was. Very good. He's former Delta Troop commander, uh, and he came up with a lot of really good real-world training. And um, then we did uh, all the maritime stuff, uh, VBSS, and we, we would drive up to, like, um, Point Magoo and do gas and oil platform takedowns with the Huey guys, um, you know, roping on or coming up from a boat with hook and ladder. Um, and so we did all of that, you know, starting in the pool. And then, um, you know, I had to get very up to speed very very quickly and like i thought i was pretty slick on the ground from being with one seven for so long and i I hit the ground at recon and i realized the first day these dudes walked over and they descended on me like like a pack of wolves and they were just like ripping shit off my gear they're like get rid of that you don't need this get rid of cool guy patches and like you know we're, we're professionals here like take your fucking ir american flags off of everything like that was um, a really good team on that deployment they I really were, enjoyed they working so with those great. guys. And, um, they, they were, were, they were very, like, keep your keep your boots bloused unless you're doing something where you don't need them bloused. And then, like, keep your sleeves rolled. Like, they didn't, well, like, they were cuff their sleeves it. and shit. They were, yeah. they were very smart because Zuber, the, the, the officers they had were, were good, but their staff NCO Corps was fantastic. Exactly, yeah. Um, and um, Real professionals, real combat-hardened dudes. Yeah, Tim and Williamson was over that, there. He was a great yeah. dude. Oh, God, Williams. He was fucking fantastic. Or, yeah, Williams. Just and, 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 and then... Uh, Jarvis, Master Sergeant Jarvis. Jarvis, yeah. He's a legend, you know, and, and Gunny Duncan and, and all those guys. They, they they understood that they, being the, the, the quote-unquote special guys on the boat, were going to be skylined their entire time there. So there was no worse thing that they could do than try to walk around acting like they were better than anybody. Because if they kept their head down, then they could actually enjoy a lot more freedom of maneuver um, and get away with more shit. So you could do better training but you had to play by certain rules just to keep yourself from being visible. You got to play the game. Smart, yeah. Very smart way to do things. And so, um, they showed up and they were just like, you know, like, Hey, take your Anglico bullshit out of here. He's like, um, get, you know, take these patches off, get rid of all these extra pouches. You want to be as light as possible. He's like, I understand you got JTAC things you got to do, but, um, they, they completely turned me around on, uh, PCCs and PCIs, like wa- walking out the door with them, uh, pre-combat checks and inspections, like they were so damn thorough in mission planning and preparation that I was like, 
this is way more professional than I ever saw anybody going out the gate with, like, going into combat in Afghanistan, like, not to knock 1-7, but these guys were so detailed-oriented. They, their planning process, they had down to a timeline that was, just like, very fine, and then they would do these rehearsals that were, you know, actually applicable, and then, uh, you know, they would stand there and do full comm checks and, and everything in such an organized manner that I was, I, I took a lot of that and plagiarized the hell out of it in, the, in our SOPs. Um, so that was very, very beneficial. And the, the added benefit of that is we started calling their JTACs up and getting them better. And so in return, they started giving us those jump seats. So we were able to get the, the two teams initially of, you know, a JTAC and an RO. And then we were able to go again because we didn't embarrass them. They were very worried that we were (laughs) going to embarrass them. And, uh, uh, and then they started giving us jumps, and then we got to do lots of Hearst with them, and then we started enjoying a lot closer relationship, and they gave us those ITVs, those little Barbie Jeeps uh, yeah. that made... Uh, that are fix. no longer in use. That are no longer... Yeah, but they, they allowed us to get off of the, the ship. Yep. You know, they gave us excuses like, hey, we need somebody who's this mobile, and, was like, and, and we were the only ones who could raise our hand and be like, hey, we can do that. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up making ourselves inserting ourselves in a way that guaranteed us work and that was recon's doing um and even when we got on ship eventually uh the the mu command which was strangely on the san diego sort of anti um anglico i think they thought that we were too too cool for school kind of guys the mu command on the san diego or talking about the mu command in general the the mu command bravo i can't speak for for you guys on the the Macon Island. We had a pretty good we had a pretty good relationship with the command element as long as you know the, mas- the master sergeant who was the ops chief the, master uh, guns man no, I'm not gonna no, say no, no. Uh, on, the, on the on the command Bravo day it was that it was that master sergeant who was the uh, I know who you're talking about I don't remember his it, name him and uh, him and the the XO who oddly enough had been a, a first Anglico guy I thought he would have loved us he was very like use Anglico to do bullshit stuff. So they wanted to make me really? like night. Yeah. They wanted to make me like the night watcho. Well, in the sack. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh, no, yeah. I was like, we are two Anglico officers on this boat. And we were part of the ship's defense team because of our, all of our optics. I was like, no, I'm not doing this. And, uh, you have to fight and, off a bunch of the bullshit. And that's yeah. where good leadership comes into play. Like when I think it was you guys, you were guys that were during the workup. You guys were up at, uh, uh, Fort Hunter Liggett. Yeah. And they're like, "Hey, all your guys are going to be uh, guards for the the fake EPWs." Yeah, and, and you like, and you and Watt like, no. were like, "This is stupid." Send them back on the helicopter back to Pendleton, and they'll yeah, do so real we, training. We, we sent them home, and I stayed back with recon, and I did long range raids for fuck five days. I don't think I slept because I was doing our workup as Anglico and the recon workup. I was trying to insert the team as much as I possible, but it ended up most like just like you said, it, they just wanted me to go out there. Um, yeah, if anything, the team would be used to help out the support by fire position or like the yeah, like the like, headquarters I think I, area I think, pulled back. I think they got into some stuff like that mm-hmm. occasionally. You know, it's like, hey, we'll have some uh, some JFOs with uh, you know the the uh, was the outer cordon, you know, the BLT guys or something like that. But it wasn't it wasn't that often. But they. I ended up doing all these raids and I like between that and uh, our workup, I think I slept in my own bed in a three month period. I think four times. Oh yeah. Cause I was constantly in the field. Dude, uh, the Mew workup is the worst. It was tough. Yeah. It's um, just, it's, it's just like 
always going on. It's like for months yeah, you're dealing then, with it. You're doing shit. And the at-sea periods, you're kind of <sighs> just like you're, you're stuck out there. Uh, and there's, you can do. there's always issues to deal with. Like, you're, you know, you're going on ships, so the space is obviously at premium. And, you know, you're trying to yeah. jockey with the fucking S4 guys to, like, the landing force guys. Like, hey, man, let me get my let me get my trailer, too. You know, let me get my home V <laughs> and my trailer. You know, it's Well, we like, had trouble even getting building. Like, they did, because the point I was going to make was that the, the Mute Command Dad, they were just like, fuck, Anglico. So when we were moving on to the ship, they, they just kept, like, the Embark officer was just like, uh, yeah, we were going to put you here, but now we're going to move you down. And it's like, they were basically going to put our guys in like the fucking, like the, the boiler dungeon room in the bottom like, of the yeah, just dungeon. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, fuck no. So I was like, I went and I, I told Duncan, the other, uh, the, the recon platoon commander, I was just like, hey, he's like, hey, he's like, don't worry about it. We got you. And then they just pulled our guys into the recon birthing. Yeah. And so if it hadn't been for, for them giving us that top cover, then uh, our guys would have been just like, you know, just living in the trash compactor for eight, eight months. It's easy. Uh, it's easy to take a group of people that you see aren't, or you see, you think aren't doing anything, and give them some stupid menial task that yeah, is, because they didn't understand what we do exactly. Uh, where, and, where, whereas you know, every time we've gone ashore, everybody in the joint environment has heard of us. Like Marines don't know who the hell we are, and then in the the joint environment, I, I was down at uh, this Navy SEAL exercise, uh, this Trident thing. Um, this last year and I had a Navy SEAL uh, 06 come up to me and he was like, how can I get a ton of Anglico guys? Like, I just want Anglico guys around. Cause you're, he's like, you're, you're Marines. So we like what you've got. And he's like, but you speak joint environment. And I was like, please put in formal requests. So I was like, and I told him, I was like, I, I put him in contact with the, the Anglico CEO. I was just like, look, this is how you do it. And he's like, uh, but among Marines, like, no, they're just like, who the fuck are these guys? They, they're JTACs? Okay, whatever. Put them in the boiler room. Most people don't even uh, know what a JTAC is, you know, unless they're yeah, like exactly. a combat arms guy that's dealt with them. They're like, JTAC? What, what? So, so that deployment was, was frustrating. The, the workup, you know, um, all, all that time. What, what, so when, when we got on ship, though, um, I managed to start basically horse trading with recon and being like, look, I, I, I will go with you if you bring my team. And then we, I got us dirt deaded in uh, Djibouti. Otherwise, they were just going to let us rot because we didn't make it up to Kuwait where you guys were. Um, so I was like, we need to go ashore and do some training. Otherwise, we're going to go insane on this boat. So we, we hit the ground there, uh, and Recon basically was like, hey, we need JTAC support. And that's how we finagled it. And I got I got ashore with uh, – I don't think I got the ITV ashore, but um, I got us ashore. And as soon as I hit the, the ground there, I found that there were TACPs there and a PJ squadron and these army guys that had a, a fire section. And so I just started walking around from office to office being like, Hey, you want to do her stuff? Do you want to go, uh, do fire stuff? Do you want to do this? And then we were teaching the, it was jolly, you know, jolly green, the, the rescue squadron. We, we taught them CAS. They wanted to learn CAS and rotary and five lines. Yeah. And then the, the recon guys wanted to refresh some of their hearse masters. So, we were like, hey, we'll link you with Jolly Green, and then we'll go out and we'll be the JTACs, and then we'll bring the TACPs along who are going to uh, bring some French Mirages. And we just cobbled together this basically little joint task force, and we just started making work for ourselves. It was, and we, we, and the, the, the Mew representative down there was this major who was like two months from retirement. He was like Murtaugh and Lethal Weapon. He was just like, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> just do whatever. He was like, as long as you don't kill anybody that's not supposed to die, he's like, I don't care what you do. I, I was like, do you want like a con op for this? And he was like, nope. 
He's like, just back brief me if something goes wrong. I was like, okay. Overseas, like Kuwait, Djibouti, places like that are definitely awesome places to train because you can do exactly that. We did the exact same thing in Kuwait. We're like, hey, there's a uh, – they don't call it a squadron. They call it – I think they call it a company of Apaches over yeah. here. And we're like, let's go talk to them. So we go over and talk to the Apaches, and we ended up doing Apache cast like two to three times a week for three yeah. months, you know, like – yeah, I was jealous of that. We we had we had French mirages that we were working with probably once a week out there, and uh, man, they're tough to work with. Those guys, they're like, they want everything in like WGS eighty three lat long. Really? Yeah. So you're like reprogramming your dagger. Like, fuck, I got to remember how to change these settings. Like, oh my god. Uh, That's one of those things you you get taught, and then you're like, we'll never use that. Ex- exactly. <laughs> and then you're like trying to remember back to to that, and then. But yeah, we did a, we did a shit ton of stuff, and then we you know we worked with the seals a little bit, and then recon um, came and went, uh, and we would do ranges with them or or go out on raids or whatever, and it, and it was fun. And then you know then that whole Yemen mission came around, and we just rotted off the the coast of Yemen until two six Mew came and uh, relieved us. Uh, and that yeah, was luckily, it. luckily I was in Kuwait for all of that. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we just caught the uh, port call on the way out in uh, Oman. I don't know if you can see it. Hang on. I, I don't know if I can tilt this camera in a way that you can see the the rug out there. You see the, the corner uh, of that rug? Is that one rug? from Saudi Arabia? That's one of the ones that I stole from that tent in Saudi Arabia that the BLT ended up having to tear heaven and earth apart looking for. <laughs> Dude, those tents were fucking ridiculous. That whole thing was... Saudi Arabia was the grossest I've ever felt, I think, in a, during well, a yeah, show so, anyway, yeah. so that, that that was that deployment, and then, uh, you know, I, I stayed with Delta with you until, I, I was hoping that Watt was going to move on, and I would get a chance, a shot at being the Delta commander, but he was holding on until he PCS'd, and then, uh, and then I EAS'd uh, towards the end there. We worked with the British my last week. Yep. My last day in the Marine Corps uh, active duty, I was thrashing everybody in the surf. Yeah, well, it's and the I, 148, I, I, 148 yeah, battery, battery commandos. And then I, I walked. I walked into IPAC to get my DD two fourteen, still soaking wet uh, nice. from the beach, which I was, I thought was, kind of a cool thing. It was like, hey, I was working to the minute I left. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then uh, I yeah, was not. That, <laughs> 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 yeah, you go, you went to the Mew and then uh, decided not to deploy, right? No, I deployed. I, I oh, did, did another. Yeah, I did another deployment. Came oh, yeah, home. You know, that's right. I remember talking to you like over messenger while you were in the sack. You know, like, yeah, they. I, what happened was I came back and I was like, "Hey, you know, I'm getting out." Like that just cemented my reasonings for getting out, doing that second mew that was worse yeah. than the first one. And um, I was like, "But you know, I'm a waste here at the mew. Like, it's the down cycle. The mew's you know not going to deploy for another over a year. There's no reason for me to be here." And I know I have experience and, and knowledge I want to pass on before I leave. So I contacted 11th Marines. I was like, hey, I want to come over there and teach the TACP primers and go to the field. You know, because I was one of, what, a handful of JTAC-E's evaluators on the on the West Coast. Oh, especially in the in the battalions. Like, you go to the, the regiment and they have no E's. Yeah, and I talk, so I talked to them and they're like, yeah, when do you want to come over? And I was like, all right, well, I, I was like, uh, how about August or what? It was either August or September. And uh, that gave me a couple months of like enjoying the down cycle of being, you know, part of a, a unit that's not doing anything. Um, and then like a month before I was supposed to go over there, they called me and they're like, Hey man, 
uh, hey, you're supposed to be coming over here in like September, right? And I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, I talked to Master Gun so and so and supposed to. And they're like, yeah, that's cool. Um, but if if you come over, then you have to do the UDP in October. They're like, that's the only way you can come over here. And I'm like, dude, fuck you, man. I'm like, I'm getting out. Like that, that'll put me right up to my EAS if I take my. At that time, I had like 80 days of terminal, yeah, um, saved up. And uh, they, were, I was like, you know what? Don't ever fucking call me. I was like, don't, don't ask me for anything. I was like, that's that's why people are getting out. I was like, that's the bullshit right there. Like, yeah. I'm trying to help you out. I didn't even have to extend a hand of courtesy to you, and that's how you're gonna fucking respond. Like, hey, man. Well, yeah, you can come over here, but only to go to, on this deployment. And I got it. You're shorthanded on JTACs and shit, but that's yeah, the reason wanna, for me come to come here, over you and help. Bitch work. Yeah, I'm going to come over and help build up the fucking JTAC core rather than going out and just being another body on a deployment. You know, I was just like, <sighs> I was super bitter. They also offered, and this will be interesting to you, they also offered when I got home, the ops chief over at Anglico was like, hey, you want to come back to Anglico? And I was like, sure. He's like, you can come back to Delta, but they're going out next week. You know, oh, they wow. were they were basically going out on the Mew to replace, you know, who uh, who replaced Boy. us. But that was the one that uh, did a lot of shit, right? That's Delta and I was like, no, man, I'm getting out. I'm, I'm not doing it. And yeah. then they ended up getting attached to a task force. They were the only people that got off the ship during that deployment. They got sent to yeah, Iraq. They went to like, uh, I thought it was Syria, but yeah, okay. No, yeah, they got that was a different one. That was on mine. That oh, team okay. got sent to Syria, but that team got sent to Iraq and attached to a task force unit. And they brought one recon guy with them just because he, they needed a Puma operator. So I guess everybody, and I thought it was hilarious because recon, you know, us and recon, everybody gives each other shit about what, who can, who does what and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was funny. And I was like fucking bummed. I was like, of course the one I say no to, like they're out doing some cool shit in Iraq. Yeah. And that, I, that happened to me three, three times at fourth thing. Okay. So, you know, after I left active duty, I went to the, the reserves while I was in grad school and stayed with, Fourth Anglico, which is a totally different beast than uh, active duty Anglico. So, I mean, they're deploying just as much, but the, as as uh, autonomous as we were as assault, you know, we were we we as assault just did our own thing. We we did mm-hmm. our own training, and you know, the fix got whole days where we were just you know we as fix leaders had our guys to do whatever we wanted with them. You know, at, at the reserve side, you never are away from the platoon. And most guys can't even tell you what salt they're in. They just know what platoon they're in. Um, really? And, and, that's, and that's just a reservism because when you're, when you're out there on a normal reserve weekend, you're trying to squish a, a month's worth of training into that drill weekend. You know, so it's like, oh, every, every daily admin task that would have happened, like, oh, you need to go see the sergeant major about your enlistment package or you need to go uh, to dental or all that stuff all has to happen in two days. And so, like, you as a team leader never see your guys all in one place at one time. You know, did you so many, so did many, you roll right into the reserves when you got out, or did you take I, some I time did, off? And then I stayed, I stayed for about six months, and I got into a big fight with the CO and left. Um, I dropped the RRR for about two months. I, I got into an argument with him because the OPSO at the time was a retrained, uh, like air signal guy, you know, like a, a signal guy from the wing, mm-hmm. and he retrained to artillery to come to Anglico. But he was like a major. He was like our OPSO, and he had just done his artillery safety test and so he was all had a boner for it and so he wanted us to do every 0802 in the the company to do an artillery safety test and to do that it takes a week you have to have all of the pubs on hand you have to have a regimental artillery chief or a battalion artillery chief on hand um a field artillery chief excuse me a fac uh and then you have to have an affated gfts you know graphic firing tables tabular firing tables all this stuff they didn't have any of that 
Yeah. He's like, sit down and take this test. And we're like, there's no fucking way we can accomplish this. And, oh, by the way, I was trying to get this uh, one of my buddies, Joe Deucen, qualified, uh, get his check ride done to send him to TACP school the next week so he could take a, a debt out to Afghanistan that summer. I was like, this is my priority. I don't need to be playing fuck fuck games with an, uh, a, uh, an artillery safety test that I don't have to, to take. Yeah. We're and there's no reason you're not you're not in there's a no battery is, like yeah i was like and so he was like no one's impressed by your lip walker he's like get the fuck in there he's like just just do it so i refused to do it and i tried to go back into the dbte and finish uh Deucen's qualification and he was like he's like who the fuck do you think you are he's like and i was like sir this is bullshit and he was like i don't care and then Deucen went to um TSP school and he'd had almost zero prep time and so like the the instructors all agreed they were like hey this guy's a fantastic human being who his leadership failed him and so he didn't pass and so I was like now we just lost that school seat yeah it's like you're sending guys to jump school before you're sending guys to TSP schools like we're not paratroopers man we're not infantrymen like nobody's so, jumping into anywhere no, anytime yeah, nobody's soon. jumping into anything like I know you think this is extreme sports that we're getting paid for on the weekends but like if I like this is an insert method. If I if you land on the ground and you're not an infantryman and you can't drop a bomb, you are no good to anyone. Yeah. I was like, you need to get your fucking priorities in order. And so I had that discussion with the CO and he told me I was like an insubordinate prick. And so I was like, okay, this will be my last drill. And so I left. So how does that work? How do, how can you go from like regular drill to like IRR? Because so it, it depends on whether you're on contract. If you're on contract, you're stuck. You know. Okay. Um, you have to keep showing up and drilling, but I didn't take any sort of bonus and I did not do um, a contract. I, I was past my eight years of obligated service at that point. Yeah. Um, so I can drop to the IRR any day I want, you know? So if I, if someone so much as looks at me wrong in the S3 these days, I can literally just drop papers and walk out same day. It's that easy. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's really weird that you can just go in and out of it. It is, and you can change units. You can pick which unit you want to leave and or go to and when, as long as they will receive you and they have a slot for you. Nice. So, like, I, there was a there was a point where, I, you know, I, I live in New York now, and I, I work in television, and uh, the public affairs office is, like, f- was, like, four blocks from my old apartment. And I was, like, I see those guys everywhere at all the veterans events and, you know, the, the Headstrong Gala and, and so on and so forth. And, and they, they work. They just work with TV people, and they do the parade every year. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, you know, this would be what I'm doing, but I would be doing it in uniform. And I, it's I got a buddy that apartment. works up there, McAdams. So was, yeah. So I was like, hey, uh, uh, I was like, I was like, can I come over to the PAO office and be a total pogue? And I was like, this would be awesome. And they're like, they're like, no, we don't want an artillery guy in here. We don't. We, what would we do with you? And I was like, okay, she been like, fine. I also do messaging. Remember when <laughs> I was like, days. I do IO, and I'm an actor. I was like, but yeah, and. Uh, so fourth angle code was great, and uh, when I came back, they, I, I, I heard that the, the CO had changed over, and it was a former recon Bubba, and uh, he was very aggressive, and uh, the, the OPSO was a former recon guy. He's a pilot. His call sign was FAG, former action guy. Oh, and, nice. Uh, oh, yeah. That's super so, random. Um, yeah. Um, oh, his name is Cisparo. He, uh, he was actually in recon with Rudy Reyes in, in dive school. Um I'll have him come on the show sometime. The former action guy. Oh, yeah. I've got Rudy's phone number. I'll send it to you. I met him at the Headstrong Gala, and we hung out a bunch, uh, especially after he found out I was with Alpha Company Recon. And um, 
uh, he's super intense. That guy is just a ball oh, of chaotic yeah. energy. He's just whew, hard to keep up with. And um, so I, I yeah, I, I went back to Fourth Anglico and um, I, I took over Third Brigade Platoon for a little bit. Um, it was great, and I worked for a really really great guy. Uh, and uh, they kept offering me all these deployments, and but they were all like, I, they offered me an SP MagTap one, and I was like going to jump on it. And, mm-hmm. Because the SP MagTap was going to Syria and uh, doing a lot of good shit in Iraq at that time. And then the active duty guys all saw that the reservists were the Anglicos that were getting all the, the good missions because of that. So they're like, all right, no, we're going back to SP MagTap and you're going to go back to the Georgian rotational missions. And so we're like, all right, all right, fuck. Okay, so we did a GLT rotation. And I was like, I'm not going back to Afghanistan. Fuck that place. Like, it's dead to me. So I kept turning down deployments, and but... You know, I, I felt like my value at the company was added by the fact that I was a you know JTACE and a Hearst Master, and I, I could train all these guys to go out, and all the all the young officers were eager to go anyway. So, and well, at the um, same time, you you're going to you were going to school, correct? Yeah, I was going to school, and then I, the reason I eventually left Anglico altogether was not because you know I I timed out or anything. It was just because uh, flying down to Florida every month, I kept missing auditions, and like I, I I got called. I was supposed to be on season two of The Punisher. They wrote they wrote a part specifically for me as continuity from the little thing I had done on season one. And I, I was supposed to be a speaking role and everything. And they called me and they're like, Hey, can you come in? And I was like on my annual training. Yeah. Like, like the two weeks. And I was in the, uh, the Caribbean. You're like, you sorry, know? I'm doing my cybersecurity <laughs> cert right now. Well, no, we were, we were doing great shit. We were doing like VBSS and amphibious raids with, um, these guys from, uh, we had, we had a couple of Navy SEALs, MARSOC and, uh, ODA, out with us and it was great and we were just having like it was like special operations heaven where you you know eat steak flavored clouds and poop secrets it was just amazing <laughs> and uh so but i had but i had to like turn this roll down and it, that kept happening you know it was just like every time i would get a good audition for like you know hey, oh they want you on law and order i'd be like oh no you have drill that weekend and they say you can't reschedule it's like motherfucker so I finally left, and now I'm at uh, 2nd Battalion, 25th Marines, up in Long Island, and I'm the air officer. And I got there in October, and oh, now, I didn't know you. I didn't know you had switched. Yeah, so I, I left back then, back in October, and um, it's been great so far. You know, because like we're not due to, to. They just came back from that deployment. The the guys that you made the shirts for in the, in the memorial, mm-hmm. that was them. You know, and um, you know, now we're just we're just basically re building the battalion post that deployment and so you know i'm one of three air officers in a battalion that probably has about 500 people in it and we're the only jtac so like i can sort of come and go a lot easier uh, and it's been working out so this year since i since i made that switch i've been on like six network tv shows and it's been it's been good so what's the struggle what's the struggle for an actor like what's the initial like this is the hardest part to get through and then once you well well one i didn't know what the fuck i was doing because i didn't i didn't intend to do this i i was going i came up here to do grad school to to either go to the cia or the fbi and i got hired by the fbi and i made it all the way through to the end to be a special agent and i woke up one day and i just realized i wasn't happy and I was like, you know, I was going through the middle of my divorce, and I was just like, you know, I just need a change of everything. I'm going to stay with the Marine Corps. Um, I don't really want to be an investigator, uh, which is essentially what you are as a special agent. You know, mm-hmm. You're a federal detective um, of some some regard. And I was like, the only thing I was excited about for that job was to go to HRT, um, which I'd called, or they had called me, and they, they had 
guaranteed me a, speed, uh, a seat at selection. But I was like, you know, this is a tier one team. If I don't make it, and I'm going to have to do 25 years here to retire, and I got to do white-collar crime in Topeka, Kansas, like, fuck, yeah. I should have just stayed in the Marine Corps. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, retire a hell of a lot sooner. So I was like, you know what? And, and while I was in grad school for global affairs and counterterrorism, I, uh, I was working with all the veterans groups, and they, they all talked to each other, and I put out this or they put out a, a, a call. They were like, hey, this TV show on Netflix wants real veterans. And they don't ever tell you what it is because, you know, they, they don't, especially when it's Marvel, it turned out to be The Punisher. And mm-hmm. I sort of guessed it. I was like, I think this is The Punisher. And uh, I'm a, I was a big Punisher fan. So I had a, an Army PAO guy take a headshot for me and uh, send it in. And I got picked and I was on season one. And then... That got me into the Screen Actors Guild, which was insanely lucky, by the way. Um, the hardest part for a new actor is get into the Screen Actors Guild. That's one of the hardest things because you have to either be an extra in uh, enough jobs where you get three what are called waivers, something you did special in that where you're not just standing there. Like you have to speak, like get a line or do some specific action where they feature you pretty prominently in the movie. And it's very mm-hmm. rare for you to get three um as fast as I did. I got them in like three months, which is, you know, some guys will do it for eight years and not get all three. Oh, geez. Um, yeah. Like it's very hard. And you get, and you get paid like shit and you're treated like dirt and being an extra is very, very miserable. The other I've way he- to do it. I've heard it's a very hierarchical like society. Like when you're on well, set, it's, it's like, union. you don't speak, you don't it's speak union to rules. Yeah. There are union rules about it. Like you will eat last. It's basically being like on a working party or being like a Lance Corporal. And it's just like pecking order on ship. You know, it's like, you, if you're non-union, you have to work longer than anyone else. You're, you, you usually have to show up at like 3 a.m. if it's a early morning call, whereas the regular actors are not going to show up till 7. You know, so they, it's like being gunny timed. Yeah. Out the ass, and then uh, you're not allowed to speak. You're not allowed to make direct contact with any of the primary actors and stuff like that. But like, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know the etiquette, so I just like walked up to John Bernthal and started talking to him, and then he got very friendly with me when he found out I was a marine, and then the, a bunch of the guys from the show started coming out with the veterans groups because they're all supposed to be veterans in the show. So they came out like rock climbing with us and they would take me to dinner and have me go through their scripts and stuff. So I had a very unusual, like sort of very uh, lucky start. That all how much, that how much of it, how much of it was luck though? And how much of it was you, you opening your mouth in a moment where a lot of people wouldn't have, I'd say 50, 50. Because a lot of people create I their... That, I was given the chance out of luck, but then I decided to open my mouth at the right moment. Yeah. Um, so I'd say 50-50 there. But, but then after that, I, I was like, okay, I started uh, doing a lot, of, a lot of research. And, you know, being uh, telling people that you're a Marine it opens a lot of doors. It's, I, I call it the M-bomb, you know? And it's like, you just if you slip that into conversation with somebody, it's enough to impress them. That they're going to see a thousand actors in a day for a part you know, in the audition process, if you can do one tiny thing that sets you apart from anybody else, that's another chance that they're going to look at you because mm-hmm. you'll, you'll apply to a hundred jobs. You might get auditions for 10 and you might book one of those. So it's very much accuracy by volume. So telling people you're a Marine is, is, is somewhat helpful. Um, but then that's as far as it will take you after that. It's up to you to show that you're professional and prepared you know, they, they only care so much that that will give you like a second sideways glance. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to you to try to prove that you belong there. So like I did a lot of extra, I did tons of classes. I did two years with a coach. 
um, I, while I was in grad school, um, I you know took classes on actor resume writing. I took audition tons of audition classes on how to how to act. Were you paying out room. of pocket, or was the GI yeah, yeah. Bill covering oh, this? Oh yeah, all out of pocket for that. Mm. Um, I've probably dropped. I look at it as an investment because one, if you get a principal role, which is a speaking role, um, one day is a thousand dollars before taxes. Um, okay. When I was on Ray Donovan, I got paid for a two week rate. Um, and that's, you know, that's a couple thousand dollars. That's, that's per week. It's like $3,000 or something like $3,500. So, you know, per fortnight, that's $7,000. So it's a very, very good money. That's why people do this, uh, other than, you know, but it comes in bursts though. It, but it comes in huge bursts with huge gaps in between. So like, um, I look at it as an investment is like, Hey, if I spend this much money and I book one job, it will have been worth it. You know, I, I I'll spend a $200 on new headshots or, Two hundred dollars on this class to meet this casting director, and and you know I, there it's very pay to play where there are these organizations where you can have coaching sessions alone with producers and casting directors and agents and stuff like that, and that's how I got my agent is going to those, and you'll end up paying a lot to meet a lot of different people, and all but eventually you'll you'll make an impression on one, and that's the next step to get you into the room with so-and-so. And like, I got, I got a really good relationship with this one casting director. Cause I did, I did a very good job, I think in one class. So she gave me that kind of second look. Then I mentioned I was Marine. She gave me another look. And then I sent a thank a handwritten thank you note after the fact, after meeting her, which I think left an impression. You yeah. Know? And so be, being professional and being on time, the military side of that really, really helps in this because a lot of people, the, the reason people don't last in the acting business is one, they can't afford to because that pay comes in so sporadically mm-hmm. Two, they act like getting cast in the show is the end of the work. You know, once you mm-hmm. show up on set, you still have to prove that you belong there. Otherwise you're not going to get cast again and people don't want to work with you. Your, your reputation is very quickly spread around because I mean, who sees something more than what you're making on TV. Yeah. You know, and if you're difficult to work with or you act like a Neanderthal or a, a worse, a prima donna on set, yeah. then no one's going to ever want to hire you back. And Especially so, if you've never done anything and you're walking in like, yeah, excuse it, me, it, I'm, it, I'm here to act. Yes. So if you show up, you have to remember that on set, uh, when you're at, on a, a big TV set or, you know, a, uh, our movie set or something like that. Like I, I was on blue bloods last week and Donnie Wahlberg was in all the scenes I was in. And that guy is a stro- like true professional. He knows everybody's name on set. He shows up early. He leaves when he's done, but he makes everybody else's job easy. You got to remember that like you as the actor are the end of a very long chain to get that thing on camera. Yeah. Crew has to show up so early to rent the trucks, fill those trucks with all the gear, take it to the location, unload it, set it all up. Sound has to go. They have to get the lighting right. They have to set the cameras in certain angles, set up the video village so that the producer and director can sit there and see what it looks like. And then there's all the post stuff. And you're just the guy who walks in and says some words. And if you're going to, if you fuck up your lines, you will literally hear the entire crew on the set. Just go, ugh, because now you're, because now you got to do it again. Yeah. And it, that you're slowing things down. So I, I flubbed one line in front of Donnie Wahlberg and I was mortified because we had to do another take. And I was like, Oh, that's not good. Especially at my level. You know, I'm very, very low level here. Yeah. Like, I'm doing a couple lines here, a couple lines there on TV. 
And, you know, I, I've gotten a couple parts where I, like, I have a full name <laughs> as a character, but, like, half the time I'm, like, detective number one, you know. But, like, that's how you start. And You're paying your dues. You, you pay your dues, and but if you show up and you're like, I, I'm a principal actor and you act like an asshole, like, just don't be a fucking dick. Like, understand that you are the bare bottom of the totem pole in terms of all the actors on that set. You are owed nothing, and you owe it to everyone on that set who wants to go home at on time to do your fucking job, just how, like anything else. How important do you think representation is within the industry? For me, it was crucial because um, New York has a lot less work than LA. Um, there are it's getting more and more here because there there's like fifty five or sixty episodic TV shows um, filming at any given time. You know, you got to think about all the Netflix and all those things that are happening, mm-hmm. as well as network TV shows, you know. And um, f- if you don't have an agent here, uh, there are probably, there's probably more than, I mean, there's 10 million people in this city. I'd say at least 200,000 of them are actors. Yeah. Between Broadway and uh, TV and movies and stuff like that. There's way more than that in L.A., but if you think about how many people are going to apply for a role, if they do an open casting call for something, they're going to get 200,000 submissions or let's say 100,000 submissions if it's just a male role. Yeah. You know, then out of that, it needs to be a certain age range. Well, that's going to eliminate a couple scores of thousands of people. And then it's like, oh, he needs to be this race or ethnicity. That's uh, a couple more thousand people out the door but even after all that elimination you might be competing for a part with 10,000 people and so if you even get into the room with an audition that's a huge feat okay and then if you get the part that's even more but to even get to that you have to have an agent because the casting directors will not put out an open call unless it's something extremely like hey we need a one-legged farsi speaker <laughs> yeah. for, for homeland you know like yeah to, to play some wounded afghan on the side of the road yeah like, there's a very specific to, thing they're yeah, looking like, for otherwise they have a pool there are a thousand like i am a six foot two fairly in shape white guy named chris there are a million dudes that look and sound like me yeah so for me to get through the the, the gate i have to have an agent because those casting directors are only going to release what's called the breakdowns the the request for somebody to come in and read for that part to the agents. And that's how they whittle it down. And then the agents have their own pools of who fits mm. that bill. And I was like, okay, I have two white guys named Chris that I will send. And then this agent has two white guys named Chris that he will send. And that guy has two. Like, and then so you all, you walk in this room. So I went in for an audition for some CW show and you know how the CW is. It's like all ridiculously attractive people. Yeah. I walked in and I like, I don't think I'm like a slouch. But I was easily the ugliest dude in this room. Yeah. It, it looked like a fucking Abercrombie convention in there. It was just like nice. these striking looking men who are all just like chiseled and like I was like I don't have a six pack and it, it, probably every one of these dudes had a six pack and they were just What do like, you what do you wear to an audition? It depends on what you're auditioning for. Like if you're going for like a cop, you show up something that has like cop colors, like a dark blue button down shirt. Just something that like they can get the imagination around it. Mm. You show up for a military role, I've I've auditioned to be a Marine before and been told I didn't look like a Marine. <laughs> you, you don't fit the bill. Yeah, it's and I not, showed up in my, like, not I, feeling brought my cam- it. I brought my cami blouse, and I put it on to be on camera wearing my cami blouse. I was they're, like, they're like, look, the Copenhagen really kind of turned us off. 
like it, you don't want to like show up wearing a costume because that's distracting but if it's yeah. something that's like applicable so like when i got on ray donovan i was supposed to be a, a thug from uh south boston so i just wore i wore a leather jacket and i brought a pack of cigarettes into the audition and i just took out a cigarette and started lighting it right, like while i was talking in the audition <laughs> and uh have like, you have you played that, any military roles so i was on the code which was that terrible marine lawyer show so when is they it like a pop- bad jag it's a really bad jag yeah it got canceled after half a season um so they they brought me on to do stunts um in the first the the pilot so they shot the pilot and then they were like okay well we like this show but we don't like the guy you have in the main act and the main character uh cast because he was too old it was supposed to be a captain yeah, and they had they brought in this guy who was like forty five years old. It was like, so they went and they recast this guy Luke Mitchell, who's this Australian dude who's probably he, he he's probably like twenty eight, but he he looks like he's about twenty two, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so they had us. They, they brought us in. They're like, okay, you're gonna run the obstacle course. And I was like, what? You know, I was like, they didn't tell us any of that. And so I show up in my first of all, I showed up in. They're like, wear your real uniform. I was like, okay. So I show up in my camis. And they're like, oh, my God, your, your uniform's all fucked up. And I was like, what? And they're like, they're like, yeah, you're wearing a black belt. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, Marines wear tan belts. I was like, no, tan belts wear tan belts. I was like, I'm a black belt, so I have a black belt. And they're like, well, you need to change it. And your boots are wrong. I was like, like, what brand are those? I was like, Belleville. And they're like, Marines only wear baits. And I was like, that's not true at all. Okay, but. And then they're sitting there putting all these, like, sets of alphas together. Um, and they've got, like, Navy medals mixed in with the uh, marine medals and they've got privates walking around with oak leaves on their cover and i'm just like oh my god and i, I so i walk over to the, the costume guy and i was like trying to explain to him how to fix it and he just waves the marine corps order around in my face and he goes i have the manual right here go away do they not have military advisors that come they in for that two specific fat thing master sergeants from paycom Ugh. and i was like and he, he was standing there in that typical like master sergeant way of he just had like a big coffee cup and he was sitting, they were both sitting there just chain smoking, lighting one with the next. I was like, I was like, Hey man, what unit were you with? He's like, Paycom. I was like, that's not a unit. That's like, that's a whole command. I was like, what unit were you with? He was like, Paycom G1. I was like, Oh, you're an admin bitch. I was like, that makes fucking sense. I was like, I was like, you're obviously not a very good one. Cause you can't even get the uniforms. Right. I was like, but it was terrible. And then they, so they made us run the O course like 12 times in a row without stopping. They built the entire O course. And so we were just doing it over and over and over again. And all these guys are real veterans, but most of them have been out for a few years. So they're not in o course shape. And so we're like, we're just doing dying it. out there. But we're just like, <gasps> you know, just totally and It's gassed. hard on the body too. You get some bruises yeah. and shit. From... Well, well, and so they were, it was 28 degrees and they had us in just boots and utes. They wouldn't let us wear the sweatshirts. Was this in like, New no. York? Yeah, it was in New York. They, they, they rented this, this plant that had been a Pfizer plant. That had gone down, gone under, and so it looked very like military, you know, brick buildings. It was supposed mm-hmm. to be in Quantico, okay. And so they put Eagle Globe and anchors everywhere, and they had you know just Humvees driving around that they had rented, and they built this whole obstacle course in this backyard. And it to like to be perfectly honest, it looked just like Quantico. I was like, oh, holy crap! And uh, but then they're you know they're they're shooting this, and they're it's twenty eight degrees outside, and they're spraying us with a hose because they wanted us to look like we were sweating because we weren't <laughs> sweating because it was so cold. And, uh, and so now we're, then they added it. They actually added an extra obstacle. They put barbed wire. They wanted us crawling under barbed wire and the ground was frozen. So like our forearms are just bleeding because the ground was all mulched up and jagged from ice. 
So we're yeah. just like pouring blood down our forearms and we're like getting sprayed with a hose. And so we're all like about to hype out. And then there was like, just go again, go again. And it's like, I went over to the stunt coordinator. I was like, this is not okay. Like, you understand, like we, we, we should get a pay raise for this because what yeah. we were doing, we were, we were getting what's called special That shit's ability. not easy. No, we were doing what we were doing was called special ability. And the stunt, the actual like stunt, stunt guys came out and did it three times. They got it on film just to say that they did. And then they left, went back to the trailer, just smoke weed or do whatever. And um, they're like, oh yeah, Cody, so you Marines just keep going. And I was like, so we're doing something that doesn't have a safety net and climbing this 50 foot rope. And like, if, if those stunt guys had done it, they would have gotten like a $500 raise for doing it without support. I was like, Hey, look, I'm a Marine. I've done this like a thousand times. So like, it doesn't bother me, but I know that the union rules state that if I do this, I deserve a thousand dollar raise to go from special ability to stunt. And they denied it. I was like, you motherfuckers. And I was like, I hope your show tanks. And it did. So fuck them. <laughs> fuck them. What's been your most interesting like role you've had so far that you're like, you know what? I really felt like that. Like I played that role really well. I kind of melded with the character. Well, well, most of them didn't really have a character I mean, so far. Like, like so far I have been Brett, the tree guy on a Netflix holiday cr- Christmas movie. Shut the fuck up. Well, I got that part because like there was, I went, I went for an audition for another guy in the, in the movie that was like a much bigger part. And I, I didn't get it cause they went with a guy who was like 55 years old. <laughs> Um, like, but look, they, man, you're just not really putting off the tree vibe. So, <laughs> well, no, it was for it, it was for like a an actual like character who was like part of the radio station or something. Yeah, um, and they went with a much older guy later on the movie, and um, what the but the writer had been a marine, hmm. and uh, he wrote this. He's a he's a gay man who joined the Marine Corps in 1979 and had to hide the fact that he was gay. And he, he wrote this book called the pink Marine about being a, a gay Marine in the closet during boot camp. It's like, it's actually a really interesting book. Um, and, uh, he ended up serving like nine years. Like he became hmm. a MESEP and became a Lieutenant and, uh, uh, stayed in. And so he was like, he's like, look, you're too young for this part. He's like, you, you know, you're what? 34. He's like, we're, we're, they went with the 55 year old guy. And he was like, okay, but, He's like, but we just like you. <laughs> so he just wrote this like two line part, and I oh, got in cool. that, that movie. Yeah, and then uh, like the Blacklist and Godfather of Harlem were just like you know random cop roles where you just walk by and say a line. That was what the Blacklist was. The the first real character role that I've gotten to do was uh, this bad guy on Ray uh, Ray Donovan, and that was back in I shot it in November. It came out in December, uh, and I played a guy named Bernie Bernie Halsey, and I, I played this like a South Boston thug in 1977. And so uh, I, I hijack an armored car, and I got to sit in this bar uh, and plot a heist. And I just sort of channeled all, like, the, you know, staff meetings of us just trying to come up with some raid <laughs> kind of thing, you know. And I just sat there drinking beer and, smoke, like, pretend smoking cigarettes. And then we, we do the raid, and I had this, like, sawed-off shotgun, and I was shooting blanks. And then this, like, stuntman's walking right next to me shooting uh, zinc out of a paintball gun so it like it splats on the side of the the truck and it looks like impacts yeah you know, it, like, oh. it's really cool uh, that's not a visual effect that's a that's a little paint round that they're shooting out of a like a tipman 98 paintball gun uh, nice so we like we blocked it out so it was like on this foot i'm gonna pull the trigger on this foot i'm gonna re you know i'm gonna charge the the pump on the shotgun and on this foot i'm gonna pull it again so he could time out his shots with my shots um, but the, in terms of like the acting, I actually got to like improv, like a whole scene where we're planning the heist. And I, I did it in this ridiculous Boston ass, uh, accent that, uh, 
Like, I just thought it was funny, and then they let me do it, and I was like, okay, it's making it in the show, I guess. <laughs> Fuck it, here we go. So, so yeah, it was, that, that was probably the most fun I've had so far. So, what's in the, what's in the future, man? What's the, what's the next step for you? The next step, so, so far everything I've been doing is what's called co-star roles, and those are, you know, you, you show up and you, you say a few lines, and then, you know, your sort of arc as a character or whatever is, is done. You know, you might be the waiter that says, here's your drink, sir. Or you might be the Bernie Halsey who's in one episode as a bad guy. Yeah, a guest star is like a guy who's somewhat well known or or is like crucial to the plot, mm-hmm. and and that's one episode or it might be a couple episodes, and then there's recurring, which is over many episodes of a season, and then there's um then there's like series regular, and that's like you know the normal big names that are that's where you want to be. Yeah, so like the next step for me is to get the guest star, and I've, I've done three or four big guest star auditions for like Law and Order and uh, Blue Bloods and a few of those ones uh, to be like an actual character uh, with you know a few episodes under. Uh, I auditioned for a show on HBO in December that was going to be like three episodes um, as a guest star, and I, I, I auditioned for Law and Order to be like the husband of the woman that gets raped on SVU. Um, oh man. Yeah, so like some some bigger parts. Uh, I just gotta get over that next hurdle. Uh, in the meantime, I'm still jtacking it up at 225 and uh, running boot sock with my buddy Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's sick, dude. Uh, so I got a couple questions, and then um, and then we'll wrap up. So someone asked, "What's why?" And I, I mean, I don't really understand this question. Maybe you will. Uh, why is the fire support community not weighted as the battery career fire support officers? That's what it said. Oh, okay. So what he's talking about is if you're a, if you're an officer, um, to continue getting promoted, you have to do, um, command time. Mm-hmm. And technically when you're in the fire support community, it's not, it does not count towards time in your MOS. So you have to be in a battery shooting howitzers to consider it artillery time, which okay. is, which is weighted towards your promotability as like a commander uh, uh, so like i will never be a battalion commander of an artillery battalion not that i ever want to be but uh because i've never commanded a battery gotcha so i once i got to anglico i just stayed in the fire support community and they they don't consider that part of the artillery community yeah we're the bastard children it really is yeah and they, they've been talking about forever making uh fire support its own MOS, but they haven't done it. So you have to like go do it and then go back to the artillery to get promoted. That's what he's asking. The answer to that is I don't know. They've been talking about changing it at very high level above my pay grade for a long time. Uh, but it sucks. You either uh, it's that kind of that, that Batman Batman line. You either uh, die a hero or live long enough to see your become self become the villain. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> uh, another question said, "What's your favorite thing you've done in your career as a JTAC?" Or in your JTEC career? Uh, definitely my time at, at Recon, because we just had so much free reign. Probably my time in Africa with them, um, because we had so much leeway. Being able to uh, come up with any kind of operation that you wanted uh, within reason. Yeah. And um, and not having to do a thousand PowerPoints and ORMs for it. You know, just actually having some big boy roles. Um very close second to that is uh, Afghanistan with my guys. You know, that's I wouldn't say that's my favorite. It's the most meaningful thing that's ever happened in my life. But uh, you know, my 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 favorite best memories are at First Anglico. 
That's awesome, man. Um, and then just my own toss out question. Um, what three things would you tell somebody that has zero acting? Like they want to get into acting. They don't know how to get into it. What are the, like the first three things that you think they should do? Okay. Um, I've actually had a few people ask me this and I, I've given them less like whole paragraph thing. I'll see if I can boil it down to, to three things. Uh, the first thing is start taking classes. If you haven't, um, figure out if you can act. Uh, that's a big thing. Um, not everybody can. Uh, sometimes I can't. You know, you, you it's a perishable skill just like anything else, and you got to practice it. Um, some people have a natural ability. Uh, other people can develop the ability. Um, I think I fall somewhere in between. I have, like, a big personality, but I needed to hone the skill because there is a lot of skill, and especially technical skill, on camera which is very different from acting on stage. Uh, you have to know where the camera angle is and the position. You have like know how to position your body so the camera can best see you. It's like very technical and like I'm not great at that yet. Um, that's one. Two is um, start meeting people early network. and often. And, networking, and networking is network, everything, network, every network, industry. Network, network, network. network. Um, and uh, so like I go to this thing called One-on-One -on -one New York which is, you know, I mentioned it before, you, you, you have to audition to get into the program, and then you pay certain amounts to be in classes with pretty big names in the industry. Um, and you get to sit one-on-one -on -one in the room with them and have some time and ask questions and show, showcase your ability. And it's meant as a class. They're not technically supposed to hire you from that um, because otherwise that would be very pay-to-play, uh, mm -hmm. which is against industry rules. But that's how they're going to get to know you. Yeah. You know, um, that's how they'll remember you. And remember that unless you are truly, truly, truly unique, there are a million people out there who want to do this as well. And this is the, one of the hardest jobs. Like I, I fully understand that there is a 90% certainty that I will not become the next huge person doing this. But, uh, after all the things I've done in my life that have, ended in near death or misery i've decided that i'd rather be poor and give this a go than yeah. um than yeah. have like the certainty of a job and you know like you tell marines that yeah oh yeah i'm an actor and like, yeah, okay whatever jerk off like there are a, a million people who are going to be haters as well and you there's just always to, haters like, brush that off and just be like look i am i happy doing this yep okay i'm not trying to tell people that i'm something more than i'm not i've, I've done very small little things but i'm happy doing it um, hopefully it goes better, you know, and it'd be fun to be somebody that, you know, is on little kids' lunch boxes that they look up to you, you know, that'd be super cool. That would be cool. Uh, but, uh, that, so that's two meeting people and, uh, and figuring out whether you, you really want to do this. And then three, um, if you live in a place where either somewhere outside of like LA, Vancouver, Atlanta, or New York, which are like the big filming hubs, um, if you live somewhere other than that, make your own content because you're not, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting cast in anything that's, that shoots in all those big places. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you either need to be in those big places so that you're available and, uh, just raising your hand for everything, uh, or start writing, start writing until you think that it's something worth shooting, do a crowdfunding thing or get scrapes together some money and make your own projects. Like, there are a ridiculous number of people who have gotten famous off YouTube. Oh, yeah. Days. So that's the yeah. advice I'd give for 
somebody starting out. If anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. You can link my page to this, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask more direct questions. But I don't want to. We're already at two and a half hours. I don't want. Oh, that's so. cool. I've gone up to I think over four before. I cut that one into <laughs> two episodes though. Um, I do. So what? Since we're kind of wrapping up. Go ahead and like any, you got any. I know you started Boot Sock, which was hilarious when you when I saw the name, I was like, yes, yeah, that's so, so that, funny. That, that's me, and my my best my best friend from uh, my battalion who lives right across the street from me here in New York, uh, and a buddy of mine from Anglico, uh, Major Palumbo, uh, who was on the Mew with us. Yeah, um, yeah. So we we came up with the idea of uh, you know there's so many veteran T-shirt companies, but we just wanted to do something a little like more irreverent, just kind of making fun of ourselves. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are very over-motivated, you know? And uh, so, like, we've got we've got some pretty jokey shirts, lots of puns. Uh, and then there's some JTAC-type stuff in there. Uh, you know, we, we, we try to leave the unit stuff to you because <laughs> we love J. Kramer Media, like, and uh, we don't want to step on your lawn. But we, we decided to make really funny, stupid shit. Uh, a lot of inside jokes to... Uh, various units so it's it boot it's boot special operations capable because we, we call our new guys boots so we just like the dichotomy of the idea of like a super motivated boot who wants to do special operations and and it also you know it's a pun boot sock it's funny i, uh, I think it's great man <laughs> i support anybody that gets out and you know they want to do something like that like again like you said you know fuck the haters like it sucks at first. You're not really making any money. Nobody's following your Instagram page, yeah. and then you put time and effort well, into and, it. And, and I'm not a meme lord like you, man. You've got the you've got the memeing down. I just like I'm just pulling photos of of me and Paul and uh, and Bo's time out there, and so we're, we're just we're making some regular posts out there. But we, you know, we just we just wanted to make some like silly shit that, that made us giggle. You know, we just sit over beers and like make some inside joke into a t-shirt every now and then. So. That's good stuff. Uh, any other organizations or any anybody else or anything you want to shout out? Uh, I will plug one thing. Uh, it's not mine to plug at all, but I do think it's a very good resource because of you know of your audience. Um, a, a lot of us, you know, when we talk about we were talking about earlier about guys who don't who claim to be supporting the veterans community. Um, the best the best one that I've found so far is uh, Headstrong. And if you if nobody if you guys out there haven't heard of it, Headstrong. Uh, .org or the headstrongproject.org um, is they started I think here in New York but they're in San Diego and Denver and New York and a lot of places a lot of guys don't go seek help because when, if you're still with the teams you might lose your security clearance and then you lose your support your, your emotional support network yeah. so they don't, they don't they'll go eight, do eight deployments and they're not right in the head and they, won't, they still won't seek help Headstrong is totally free and it's always completely off the books. There is no record that you ever saw anybody. And they will see you as long as you want to see them. And all you got to do is send them an email and you can get help. I saw them for a little while after uh, my divorce. And it, I, I stopped having nightmares after talking to them for a while. Uh, so they really, really helped me. So That's awesome, if, man. If you guys know somebody that needs some help and wants to do it very discreetly or you want some help yourself, look up Headstrong and they are awesome so that's That's cool i'm all about like tell guys like uh like so um on the last last podcast fosberg was talking about how he's become like really religious over the last couple years and he's like you might have noticed on my facebook and i'm like yeah i noticed but you know what man like if it brings positivity to your life like good on you and i'm not like some anti-religion person or anything i went to church a lot i'm southern baptist you know if i'm gonna claim something (laughs) uh 
But, I went to Catholic school, so they beat it right out of me, you know. I did 10 <laughs> years in the clink. <laughs> yeah, that, it's funny. You, yeah, you hear people that went to Catholic school talk about how you're just beat by fucking nuns and shit. You're like, what? I thought they were supposed to be like really nice people. Yeah. Oh, man. That's funny. But, well, hey, man, I appreciate you coming on the show, taking the yeah, time to me, coming on. Uh, good luck in your future um, acting and stuff like that. I know you're going to make it big, or at least at least I hope you make enough residuals where you don't have I to worry I about. Get, I hope I make enough to pay my health insurance this year. Let's put it that way. Fuck it, man. There you go. There you go. All right. Man. Thanks, brother. Hey, you too. All right. Take care. Hey, thanks again to Chris Walker for coming on the show. Make sure you guys are subscribing to the uh, to the show so that you're getting notifications every time I release them. I'm going to start trying to release two a week now, so well, we'll see how that goes. But subscribe so you'll get those notifications. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And make sure you uh, check out my website. That's jkramergraphics.com. And uh, check out my Instagram at jkramergraphics. Have a good one.